Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And what a great um, way to open the show then to have on one of our favorite guests, uh, Leslie. I don't know how to pronounce your, your middle name, Leslie. Your Shisco. How do you say it? Shisco. Leslie Shisco okay. Courier. Hi, Wanda. Right. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. And congratulations morning. on the 30th anniversary season of Marin Shakespeare Company and your 30th anniversary season uh, marking 30 years of playing for good. And what a great play to open with, you know, other than Measure for Measure, which I had never seen. And I can't imagine that. In 30 years, there was a play left for you all to, you know, to mount that you hadn't before. Like, wow. <laughs> There's a few others also. Mm, but this play, okay, is a, okay. is a, this play is considered a comedy, but it's very dense mm-hmm. with ideas. So it's, um, it's, not a, it's not like a real laugh-out-loud, audience-pleasing, boffo comedy, but it's Shakespeare's play about criminal justice and injustice, and given all of the work that we do inside our criminal justice system, it was a great play for us to open our 30th season with. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly, yes, yes, and um, and you know, having you have to you know a person coming from certain directions, you know, San Quentin is you know, a neighbor <laughs> of of the company and, you know, it's, you know, sort of like one of those those landmarks um that, you know, one can't miss. And and then, you know, the setting of being, you know, um at Dominican University. It's like, wow. And and it's sort of like, you know, it was just perfect. I mean, we're sitting in a place that, you know, had has a convent and 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 then there's a prison, and then the prison is there in the neighborhood, and it's also on the set. And you know, having um, you know Maverick make his debut, you know, um, you know from being I last saw him, you know, in Shakespeare at San Quentin, and there he is, um, you know, 
as a part of of the performance, you know, as a part of the cast. And then isn't and then, that you know, exciting? When yeah, it's <laughs> so exciting. And then he actually adds to the production. Like your production is one that no one will ever experience if they don't come, because you make it <laughs> yours, literally. Well, it's true. Um, the play has about um, a number of scenes set inside a prison. So in our production, that prison is San Quentin. And as you say, Mm -hmm. there's scenes set in convents, and and we are on uh, a university campus, which which also houses a convent. So it's (laughs) it's um, we we decided to set the play contemporary because the the problems and issues that it deals with are so contemporary. It deals with the question of are our laws being enforced too harshly, and it deals with the question of um, whether, uh, you know, when men in power abuse women, why do they get away with it? Uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know, after, after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings earlier, you know, this year, that, it's, it, that is incredibly relevant um, to this play. And then um, having Maverick in the play is just, it's just a joy. We've been working, we've been offering programs, Shakespeare programs at San Quentin for 16 years. And Maverick was in one of our groups for six or seven years. He's got a huge Shakespeare resume. He's played great roles like Mark Antony and Ariel and The Tempest. And to have him now on our main stage under the summer stars with, you know, no bars, no officers, and, uh, no, no people with machine guns walking around, um, you know, it's, it's just a joy. And he spent 22 years in prison and now for him to have that freedom to, to act as a professional actor and, and to do it in this beautiful outdoor setting is, is really special. And Maverick wrote a number of really um, wonderful rich, intelligent uh, pieces of music while he was inside prison. And we used two of those pieces in the show. They were both performed by Maverick at San Quentin as, as part of our, of our parallel play program. Uh, when the men create original theater that's inspired by the Shakespeare plays that they've been doing. And now we've incorporated them into this production and that is something that, that you won't see in any other production of Measure for Measure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, and it it just makes the experience so rich and and yeah, and it's just really fun. Um, opening night was just great. Um, pay what you can, which was so cool. And then there was cake, and there was bubbly, and just, <laughs> and yeah, it was just like the. The treats just kept flowing all night, like all the yeah. <laughs> it was just so fun, and then and then to recognize you know people who um, uh, they were at the you know at the uh, theater um, production um, you know for the first time they were at you know Marin Shakes and uh, and and then also you know uh, recognizing someone um, whom um, you had met you know behind bars, and it's so cool like. The, one of the first things you do when you get out of prison is go to the theater. Like what? 
<laughs> well, it's true. It's one Where of the first else, things Damien Brown right? did when he got out, and, and now he's working as a professional <laughs> actor. And mm-hmm. it's really special. I tell all the guys I work with inside um, that we have a policy. If you can get out of prison, we will give you free tickets to our plays, and you can bring anyone you want. Um, so the hard the hard job, of course, in this state, in this country, in this age of over-incarceration and mass incarceration is, is getting out in the first place. It's sure, it's sure easy to get in in the first place. And doing this play about, about criminal justice has really given me an opportunity to speak with our audiences about our criminal justice system. And um, I, I take lots of groups into San Quentin every year to see the plays that the men perform and also to uh, participate in acting workshops. I take um, college students and others in and, and we and we do classes that are combined with our outside guests and the men at San Quentin. And those are really wonderful learning experiences because people coming in can really see firsthand who it is who we're locking up and, and, and learn some of their stories. So we, we do acting exercises. We read Shakespeare and talk about issues in Shakespeare like mercy or forgiveness or family uh, or learning. And we might have people share what was your education like? Um, and when I'm bringing in students from Santa Clara University or Dominican University who you know, go to these wonderful colleges and they share their stories about what their education is like and then the men inside share their stories, there's, there's often, um, there's always um, a lot of similarities and a lot of differences and a lot of learning and a lot of empathy uh, is, is built. And doing this play, um, I really get to, I get to talk to our audiences and, and tell them, for anyone who doesn't know, that we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. We lock up more people in the United States than any other country, any other time in history. And I get to talk about different kinds of justice because that's what this play is about. The title of the play comes from the Bible, an eye for an eye, a measure for a measure. And that refers to a kind of justice where if you do something wrong, the punishment should equal the crime, an eye for an eye, a measure for a measure. And that has been the basis of our justice system for thousands of years. But there's also another kind of justice, and we see it in the play. And that's the kind of justice where we say, we're going to make the penalty for this crime so harsh, so bad, that it's going to deter people from committing the crime in the first place. And that's a deterrent kind of a justice. And we see it in this play, because in the play, uh, Angelo, Judge Angelo, has decided that there's a law of the land that says that premarital sex is a crime and will be punished by death. And this law has never been enforced, but he starts to enforce it. And when people come to him and say, 
the, the punishment doesn't equal the crime. He says, yes, but we have to make an example of this criminal who we've arrested and who we're about to put to death so that no one else will commit this crime. So we see this deterrent justice being practiced in the play. And, and that's, the kind of, that's the kind of justice that we have right now in California with our three strikes law, which says if you commit a third felony, you will have a life sentence. And that third felony might be stealing a candy bar. Um, and, and you're going to go to prison for life. And there's good reasons why the law was passed. Um, unfortunately, the voters are in California are now starting to, to um, cut back on that law and create some, some uh, route for some people serving life sentences uh, to, to actually have a parole hearing. But the three strikes law has put a lot of people in, in prison for a very long time who are nonviolent and who, in my opinion, um, don't, don't deserve or need to be in prison. And then I get to talk about restorative justice, which is a kind of justice which is practiced, for example, in Marin County in our youth court. And that is when someone does something wrong that the community gets together with them and makes them talk about it until they understand how what they did has hurt other people. And they come up with a plan to restore the community. And those plans often involve some kind of community service. And then the community helps the person who's done something wrong uh, carry out this plan so that they can be restored and the community can be restored. And I, and restorative justice today kind of feels like a new idea, but it's been practiced in many societies for, for a long time. And it's a way of trying to heal rather than punish. So because we're doing this this wonderful play that's about criminal justice uh, and and about how we punish people when they do something that that society considers wrong. Um, we get to talk about this, <laughs> and it's been it's been really interesting the conversations that we've been able to have with our audiences around this. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I was um <clears throat> when I was reading reading your bio, um you know, your managing director but also co-founder, you know, with your husband Robert S. Currier, um who's artistic director and he is the director of Measure for Measure. Um that you um you have a background in religion um uh, from Princeton University and I thought, "Oh, this is just perfect." Um <laughs> and and you know, and to hear you talk about Measure for Measure you know, um, you know, being uh, from the Bible, um, uh, you know, around the eye for an eye. I never heard measure for measure. I just, I know eye for eye, and probably a lot of other people know um, the eye for an eye. Um, you know, sort of um, leveling of of um, of justice um, for um, well, if you do this, then you know we have to get an equal uh, sort of kind of. Um, I guess justice uh, payoff, you know, for things to become even again, 
And it was like, yeah, but what happened to mercy? What happened to compassion? What happened to understanding that people make mistakes, um, that some things are not intentional um, or well thought out? So anyway, it was just really, really great to hear uh, hear you talk about that. And I want to continue with your bio that um, there at Princeton, where you got a B.A. in religion, you received the Francis uh, Lemoyne Page Theater Prize. Um, and you developed the Marin Shakespeare Company's educational programs and its nationally recognized Shakespeare for Social Justice program, you know, which I was able to take one of those um, workshops, which was awesome. And uh, Marin Shakespeare Company is also the largest provider of Shakespeare in prison in the world. And I'm like, wow, I want you to talk about some of the other programs, too, because I know you're also in um, women's uh, prison in Folsom. And um, and you've also started some theater for people that are returning to the community from the carceral system. Um, your production of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, uh, which you adapted and directed, um, you also um, produced uh, and directed, I guess, Don Quixote and Pericles, and you've been nominated for Best Overall Production by Bay Area Theater Critics Circle and Theater Bay Area Awards. You are part, past president of the Shakespeare Theater Association, a six-year veteran of Theater Bay Area's Theater Service Committee, and uh, a three-year, time, a three-time panelist for the National Endowment for the Arts, and a member of the Marin Women's Hall of Fame. In 2017, you were honored with the Burbage, or is it Burbage or Burbage? Yes, Burbage, Burbage. Award for Excellence. Burbage. It's almost like verbiage, right? Verbiage Award yeah. <laughs> for Excellence in Shakespeare Production. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Um, so tell us about um, uh, the, uh, you know, Shakespeare programs in the community because you, you all do a whole lot, and and now you are, you, you um, I guess, have the most programs in the world, I think, um, you know, sort of, um, Shakespeare in the carceral setting because there are quite a few programs and um, and you were at the um, recent Arts and Corrections um, uh, conference which was really awesome at, at Santa Clara University and um, and you were um, uh, I guess um, C. Damon whom we already spoke of he gave a really beautiful um, plenary talk opening the conference that was like, oh, my God. And people can actually probably, maybe, I'm not sure if it's up yet, but all of the plenaries are going to be on the website for Arts and, and Corrections. Not Arts, yeah, Arts, let's see, what is it? Um, uh, let's see, California Lawyers for the Arts. You'll be able to see um, all of the plenaries on their website soon if they're not up there already, so you can listen to Damien. But, yeah, talk about, about this wonderful programs that you have developed and and where they are and how people can get involved, because I know you also work with Soraya King, Keating, um, and, um, and and in one of the evening um, programs we were able to, to see uh, some plays that were written by some of the uh, folks that have returned to the community uh, that are still doing theater as a part of uh, connected to um, Marin Shakes. Great, yes, thank you. Um, well, we started <laughs> with a Shakespeare. We started with the Shakespeare class at San Quentin in two thousand and three, 
And um, Shakespeare was not immediately popular. It wasn't something that Mm. all kinds of incarcerated men at San Quentin really wanted to do. But we were persistent with the class. And um, we were able to put on our first actual full-length Shakespeare play uh, after a few years. And many men saw it and saw how fun it was and also what an amazing thing it was to see men of different backgrounds working together. Um, And ever since then, the program's been very popular. I brought in the visionary, amazing Soraya Keating to help develop this program. She's a registered drama therapist, and she brings um, a wealth of knowledge and intuition um, and skill to the program. And she, she and I really kind of developed the program together for a few years. And then we said, wow, what we're doing really works. We should write down what it is that we're doing. So we created a teaching manual. And, and from there, we created a very detailed curriculum for delivering a 35-week Shakespeare program in prison. And the, the curriculum involves reading and understanding and rehearsing Shakespeare, but it also involves a lot of exercises that are inspired by drama therapy that, that you've seen in practice, Wanda. And these exercises include a lot of self-reflection. We're always asking people to think about how we live our lives and, and the best way that we want to live our lives. The, they involve a lot of emotional intelligence building pretending to feel different emotions. Um, And in prison, in a prison setting, often people need to shut down their emotions in order to be safe. Um, So when you can create a safe space in a classroom where people feel like, yes, I can express joy, I can express anger, I can express fear, I can express awe, I can express gratitude, Um, it's very healing and we do a lot of work where we put people in small groups and and give creative assignments like um, we've just been reading some Shakespeare choose a phrase that that sticks out for you and create a poem around that phrase with choreography your group has 10 minutes to do that go Um, And people have to work together. It's great conflict resolution practice. And then we're delving into these wonderful plays where we're looking at things like, why does Macbeth decide to murder somebody? And how does he feel afterwards? And we don't have to talk about why you decided to murder someone, but we can talk about it through the eyes of the character and through the incredible writing uh, of Shakespeare who really shows so much detail about how the human heart works. We don't, we can talk about why do these, why does this group of guys get together to kill Julius Caesar? Why do they form this gang? Why does Brutus join this gang of guys who to commit this murder? So we don't have to talk about why you joined the gang, but we can talk about it through the eyes of Shakespeare's characters. And and Prospero and the Tempest, 
he does a lot of work to get all of his enemies in one place so that he can take revenge on them. And then he decides to forgive them instead. So we get to talk about why do people decide to forgive? What is that like? How, how, how hard or how easy is that? And we get to do it through the lens of Shakespeare. So the program is, is healing in many ways. And, and then we're working with people who often in their lives have been told, you're no good, you will never amount to anything, um, you don't deserve to live in society. And we walk in and we say, you are, you are a creative being who has something to contribute to this creative process. And, and we look at people as creative actors, as, as artists. And we say, you can, you can put on a Shakespeare play. And they can. And when they achieve that, which is something most of, most of the people in our groups never imagined they would achieve, there's a, there's a great sense of accomplishment and, and just a knowing that you can do things that you never thought you'd be able to do. So the program's healing in many ways. And one of the things we find in our gang-oriented California prisons is that because people have to work together, because people have to pretend to be fathers and sons and best friends and, um, and, and all of these different things, they, the, the men uh, and, and women, the, the men in particular who, who participate in these programs often find that they no longer want to be gang-affiliated, that they'd rather do this work and with, with people who their gang obligates them to hate, but they, they, they'd rather they don't want to hate anymore. And we've heard this over and over again. And we've heard it from the staff at the prisons who are just amazed and sometimes uh, slightly nervous because they see men of different races together on the yard practicing Shakespeare. Uh, and at first they don't know what to make of it because it's not something that they've seen before. And we've had many, many men um, men in particular uh, drop out of gangs because they can't live up to the obligations of their gangs when they're when they're doing something positive with um, with people from different backgrounds. So there's been many positive um, outcomes of the work. And after we were at San Quentin for over a decade, we had the opportunity to expand. And we went to a second prison, and we've been expanding uh, for the last five years. So we have programs going on right now in 11 California state prisons, and we'll, we'll be adding two more prisons this year. We work with men, women, and children, and we work on maximum security, medium security, and regular security. We've put on dozens and dozens of Shakespeare plays. Almost all of them have been videotaped and are on YouTube with a link from our website so family members can see their loved ones performing Shakespeare. And it, it gives the actors something really wonderful and positive to talk about with their family members and their children. 
and it um, gives them a, a, a different label. They're no longer a criminal. Now they are a Shakespearean actor. And, and um, so that's been a wonderful thing. And then several years ago, we started um, seeing um, more and more of the people we worked with on the inside getting out of prison. And some of them said, we want to keep doing this work outside of prison. So we created what we now call our Returned Citizens Theater Troupe. And we pay an hourly wage for uh, formerly incarcerated actors to gather and create original theater. And we've done that now for four years. And um, from that group, uh, we've also had... Damian Brown and now Maverick uh, acting in our main stage productions. We had one other formerly incarcerated actor, so we've had three all together on our main stage, and we hope uh, to to do more of that in the future. And we are uh, just starting a program at Alameda Juvenile Hall. We work at the County Community School here in Marin, so we work with a lot of at-risk kids. And I will say that the the most heartbreaking work that we do is in the two youth prisons um, in Stockton, where we've had a program now for al- almost a year. And it's very heartbreaking because we we go in and we work with these incarcerated youth. They're 15 to 25 years old. Some of them have been locked up since they were 12 or 13 some of them are serving five or six year sentences and they are very smart and very creative and they have so much to give to the world but the majority of them um, grew up in in societies that that did not give them a a safe childhood. So they grew up in places where um, they didn't have enough to eat. They didn't have parents who could take care of them the way I think parents should be able to take care of their kids. Um, And so for the most part, they're, they're highly traumatized. Um, And, um, and it's just, it's very sad to see them being locked in cells, um, when they have so much potential and we we try through our program to get them to believe in themselves to see their own potential to see that they can do something different than that what they thought they might be able to do and it's beautiful seeing these young men performing shakespeare and starting to see themselves and their futures um a little bit differently the governor newsom Um, is working right now to get rid of the youth prisons in California and have have them administered by Health and Human Services so that they would be more treatment centers than centers of incarceration. And we're very much looking forward to seeing how that pans out because um, these kids have a ton of potential and, and we know that they've They've done a lot of, they've made bad choices and they've done 
bad things, but it's also very clear that um, that society has let them down as well. So really the, the solution to solving our, our mass incarceration is to, is to heal our communities, um, heal, the, heal the communities that aren't safe places for young people to grow up in, and, uh, and, and that will make all of us safer and happier. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Why don't you give, give the uh, website and contact information for um, uh, Marin Shakespeare Company, and, uh, and I believe Measure for Measure, if people want to catch it, they have to, um, they have this neck this week left, like tonight. Is it, do you have true. performances on, on Wednesday? We have performances Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 8 o'clock, and Sunday at 4 okay. o'clock, and, and then Measure for Measure must end. The website is marinshakespeare.org. And um, later this summer, we will be producing a Midsummer Night's Dream with Damian Brown as Oberon and Maverick Harrison as Puck. It's going to be Marin's first ever all actor of color Shakespeare production. And we're really excited to be introducing um, some new actors to our stage that our audiences aren't haven't been used to seeing and there'll be lots of actors in the production who have been on our on our stage before uh so that's going to be a beautiful production as well and i hope you'll come see it wanda and your listeners will too the costumes Mm -hmm. are being designed by the incomparable regina evans um who Mm -hmm. runs regina's door in oakland and and she's she's just um an amazing artist and community activist and and that's what we are here at Marin Shakespeare. We're artists and community activists. We love bringing those two things together, and we love sharing that with our audiences, especially in a play like Measure for Measure. So come on mm-hmm. out and see it. <laughs> right, yeah, Measure for Measure is, is really immeasurable, <laughs> and it's a great way to kick <laughs> off your 30th anniversary season and definitely encourage everyone to not miss it. It's, it's really, really, really wonderful. And thank you so much for being available to come on the air and talk about uh, Marin uh, Shakespeare Company and and what you're up to um, for this 30th anniversary. And congratulations for, you know, staying, you know, staying the course, you know, you and Robert. And, uh, yeah, yeah, 30 more. (laughs) Thank you so much, and thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. Oh, you're quite welcome. You take good care. Look, Look forward to seeing you again in the theater. You too, Wanda. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we are going to have an interview that um, I recorded last week with Elizabeth Jones, who is um, Motor Mouth Mabel in the um, Bay Area Musical's closing production. It opened on July 6th, and yes, I'm so, so sorry, last week, um, Thursday uh, was the pay what you can at the uh, Victoria Theater where the um, uh, hairspray is being um, uh, performed. Victoria Theater is a really wonderful venue. Um, Victoria Theater, for those who don't know where it is, is at 2961 16th Street in San Francisco, really close to the um, 
to the BART so you don't even have to drive. And um, and so we had this great conversation with um, uh, with Elizabeth, um, as I mentioned, um, uh, last week, and I didn't get a chance to play it. So she talks about um, being able to be a part of the opening um, ceremony for the Bay Area um, San Francisco AIDS Walk that was last Sunday, the 14th. Yes, you missed it, but you can still donate money uh, to the uh, San Francisco AIDS Foundation um, to help with um, the organizations that are doing this important work because, yes, people still have HIV disease, and, yes, uh, in 2000. Uh, 19 people are still becoming infected, particularly older uh, heterosexual women, um, black women uh, in particular. So Elizabeth Jones, uh, who who is um, portraying uh, Motormouth Mabel, is overjoyed, she writes, to be returning to the Bay Area musicals after debuting in Violet, the musical, and ecstatic to do so as Motormouth Mabel. Elizabeth is a graduate of Howard University with a Bachelor's of Fine Arts degree in theater arts. Some of her theater credits include Lady O in The Right Note, Spare Stage, Charlene in Dreamgirls, uh, Berkeley Playhouse, Cassandra in Vanya, and Sonia and Masha and Spike at Contra Costa Civic Theater, Darlene in Dance of the Holy Ghost at Ubuntu Theater Project, Renette in Little Shop of Horrors at Contra Costa Musical Theater, and Dolores Van Cartier in Sister Act at the Berkeley Playhouse. Uh, she sends love to her daughter, uh, Cara, who's just finished high school and is jumping into adult school, adulthood. <laughs> and she also thanks God, family, and friends for their support. And you can follow Elizabeth on Instagram at uh, Eliza uh, E. L I Z A S E N O. So anyway, without further ado, I'm going to play this interview because we're not going to be get, be able to get through all of it, but you'll get a little taste of it, and perhaps I'll play the complete uh, interview maybe um, before the run is over. Hey, <laughs> so tell me about tell me about about Motor Mouth Mabel and you're coming back to um, Bay Area musicals and. You know, just why you wanted to to play this particular character, and what's her relevance for today? Yeah, um, so I had the privilege of working with Bay Area Musicals. Um, I was an ensemble member in Violet. Okay. Violet was another really charged piece about a woman. It was based on, um, the name of the book is like, uh, it's the ugly something. But basically Mm. a woman who believes and her whole environment and everyone who encounters her, she mm-hmm. believes herself to have this horrendous um, scar. Oh. And so it tells that story, and it's like, you know, it has some racial tones and all of that. So that's how I got introduced to Barry and musicals. And then I had the opportunity to come on as Motormouth. And mm-hmm. I've actually done hairspray twice before. Oh, okay. And, okay. Yeah. Familiar with the play. Mm-hmm. I was able I played um in both times I played a record shop kid and I played a dynamite and this time around um I felt it very like I was privileged to be able to play Motormouth. Motormouth is someone who is very you know unique in that in that era. You know, she was her own businesswoman. She had a 
she has like a deep, you know, um, she's a DJ. Mm-hmm. She's on TV, even though it's like, you know, one day a month, but she's, she's pioneering and she's raising her two kids in this climate and she's really trying to make a name for herself and really trying to make sure that her, uh, her kids are, are growing up in an environment that is as equal as can be at that time. And she's become a mother figure for, you know, the community. Mm-hmm. And so I just felt very drawn to her character. Um, I'm a mom too. My daughter is just turned 18. Yeah, I was reading that she yeah. just graduated from high school. Congratulations. Wow. Nice. Thank you so much. <laughs> she just graduated from high school. And I, um, I, uh, I was a single mom. Mm-hmm. Like I co-parent her within reason. Yeah. But so I, I know what it's like to have to, you know, do what you need to do and what's necessary. Mm-hmm. So that may not necessarily always be popular um, in order to, you know, raise your kid. And so Motormouth is always walking and tethering this these two worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So if people come to the show, they'll see that she's, like, really hip, really cool. She speaks in rhyme. Um, but even in speaking in rhyme, what I try to do as an actor is I really try to take the rhyme. Like, I say the, I say the rhyme, but I take the, like, um, the comedy po- component of it to make it be as far as, like, just, like, rolling off her tongue. Mm-hmm. She do she does what she needs to do in order to get what she wants get what she wants and get what she needs to be. Right. And um that's why in the story when she when she um finds out that Tracy is interested in trying to, you know, all of a sudden, oh, here comes another white person who wants to get on the jump on the best wagon and try to help, you know, the people of color. It's, those are things that have been done before. They've tried that. They've tried every possible thing. Mm-hmm. But then she realizes that her efforts are genuine. Tracy really wants to make a change, and, and Motormouth sees that she can, you know, kind of guide her under her wings and also, you know, utilize that opportunity as a means to get what her and her community want, which is, an ability to be seen on on TV and have the same rights to be able to participate in this incredible um, network and an opportunity to be on TV in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And and you know, presently there are so many communities that are literally vanishing, but they're not gone. <laughs> it's just they they have no political will, you know, they're not being recognized. They're just their rights are being trampled. And uh Absolutely. so it seems like yeah, so it seems like this play um uh is uh sort of a uh a call to to those people that are in those communities to uh to voice, you know, what they want so that they will be able to have their agency recognized. By the powers that be, yeah, mhm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was looking at some of the other characters you played. I'm like, oh man, you must sing really beautifully. Do you have any records? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't. 
Um, it's a funny, it's a funny story about how I got into singing. Like I, I sang all of the time in church. Okay. But I considered myself, you know, a singer until after I came home from school. Mm-hmm. And when I finally decided to start auditioning for stuff, people kept casting me or giving me, um, asking me to come out to audition for musicals. Mm. And I was like, wow, you know, I never thought of myself as a singer. But <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's just one of those things that you kind of take for granted when you do it all of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, something that I now cultivate, of course, and I, you know, drew upon my uh, musical talents as a kid. As a child, uh, when I was in middle school, I took private lessons. I used to play the cellist, the cello. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I, I read music. So all of those things kind of came to help support me in my ability to be able to become a singer mm-hmm. and to really come like uncover an untapped gift that I never associated myself with having. Right, right. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, that's really, really great. Um, you know that you that you like they say you know that you need to be a, be ready for your opportunity, right? So you were already prepared. Was Say it again. I, I I didn't hear you say it. You're kind of breaking up. What did you say? Say it again. Oh, sorry about that. I said my degree is in theater arts. Acting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not musical theater. So when I went oh. to college. Oh. Oh, really? Oh. I thought it was all covered in the same, you know, no. kind of. Oh. Yeah, I was, I mean, during my degree, I kind of take. You're breaking up again. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, uh huh. You, you, I haven't, you haven't been, I haven't heard you finish the sentence though. Um, after you said your degree was in theater arts, so continue. <laughs> yeah, let me. Um, I'm gonna pull over so I can make sure that you can hear me. No, I was saying that I, um, I, like I said before, because I didn't consider myself a singer, I didn't think to to major in musical theater. I was like, no, I'm an actress, so I'm classically trained. Um. And I did take dance and I did take, you know, fundamentals of dance and voice lessons of that nature, but it wasn't with the concentration or intense focus of musicals or singing, I should say. Hmm. And so, um, yeah, so absolutely. I just realized that you have to kind of, uh, when someone says, hey, we see you as this, it's because you really don't. Uh, really have to kind of say, oh, all right, I will. And so since then, yeah, I've 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 sang. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, um, do you um are you from here um or from um? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was born and raised, well, partially raised. I was born in Houston, Texas, and my fa- my family migrated to. The Bay Area when I was about eight years old, so I've been okay. here since mm-hmm. third grade. So okay, I, this is my home. I I lived in San Francisco. I lived in Berkeley as mm-hmm. growing up, and um, California is my home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. So I want to go back um, for a minute to um, to Motormouth because, um, I mean, I was just thinking um, this whole idea of Motormouth. And and being attached to a black woman, and it seems as if this character was created to be 
a black woman and and there yeah. are these things that are said about black women in their mouths, right? Um right. <laughs> and and um you know, sort of, you know, kind of stereotypical kind of things. Not necessarily sure. it's not necessarily a good thing. And and yeah. then on the other hand I'm thinking about all of these um well, I mean, you know, like the thing like Negro Day, um, the Corny uh-huh. Collins show is like, right. yeah, like, hmm, am I supposed to, like, is this politically correct to, like, laugh or, <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering about, you know, sort of the, the writing of it, like who wrote it and sort of these this character. Yeah, and then, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But then also, you know, you are following in some pretty phenomenal foot steps you know like so to say you are singers like and ruth brown the great ruth brown has been in that character and queen latifah and jennifer hudson like whoa and now you right like but you're not now you because you said you've done it before so you know you're returning (laughs) well i'm returning to the show but i'm i'm new to being motormouth oh i thought you had been motormouth in another oh another other productions no this is new for you Mm-hmm. Yeah, Motormouth is new for me, but I'm not new to the show. Okay. Um, I played a record shop kid in a dynamite twice before. Okay, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, and those questions are really valid because we all know that sometimes people who really try to write in our voice mm-hmm. it, it in a way that's easily digestible. The production tries to do, and what I try to do as an actor is try to lift her off of the page and mm-hmm. really kind of see how she tethers in that that those two worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, kind of like sorry to bother you and mm. um, Black Klansmen. How we are always, as people of color, specifically as Black people, how we have to walk in this these uh, realities that are simultaneously happening. Mm-hmm. in order for us to kind of navigate and to kind of get what we need. And if you can kind of imagine what it must have been like for people of color, black women, you know, in the 60s, what was that like? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You know, I, in during my own character work from Motormouth, that Motormouth was someone who did get married, but unfortunately, you know, her husband left and chose to leave. And so she did what many other women did, which was continue to raise, you know, her children. She had aspirations of doing things, but she had to kind of dwarf that mm-hmm. so that she can support her kids. And I think as far as having the ability to be able to laugh, you can laugh at what you believe is funny. Mm-hmm. Because the reason why they become stereotypical is because there is a – I don't want to say there is a love. I want to say there are honest and clear and clear moments that resonate within people that causes them to laugh. Mm-hmm. And sometimes other um, people who have tried to write about us or our voice, they take that and only focus on those moments that then become caricatures, that then become stereotypes. They mm-hmm. overdo it, and they only can see from that lens. Mm-hmm. And that's what I believe is common for people to say, oh, well, that's stereotypical. Yeah, if you come and see the show, you'll listen and you'll hear at some of the things that Motormouth says. But then you'll also hear her coming back and saying certain things that really kind of snap you out of it. Because mm-hmm. she's 
what, depending on who's around, is how much of her truth she's going to reveal. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's always kind of at the core of her as a character, mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. I think that's all that she asked me. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I forgot the thing I was going to say. But, yeah, you can definitely come out and laugh because it's funny. Mm-hmm. There, there are some really funny comedic moments, and there are some really heartbreaking moments, and there are some really, like, moments that make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I was looking at it, and it says that the hairspray is actually um, based on sort of loosely um, by John Waters on on real events um yeah i'm like yeah and and you know i do remember american bandstand and this mm-hmm. this is um mm-hmm. i i mean i'm i'm not old enough to know you know the buddy dean show <laughs> um yeah yeah but yeah it's interesting um uh that's because that was their own version that they had in baltimore at that time okay that was the back off of the american bandstand mm-hmm. yeah and yeah so you know, can you imagine like local teens? Like everyone wants to be able to get on TV and dance. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so you're gonna see these really clear, defined lines about you know the nicest kids in town. Mm-hmm. You know, the record shop kids, how they move, why it's different, why it's so dangerous and scary, and oh, I don't want my child to do that, and what mm-hmm. does that mean? Right. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, you sort of think about, like you said, you know, the 60s and what was happening around, you know, the Black Panther Party and, Absolutely. you know, sort of the civil rights movement sort of uh, folding into the Black Power Movement and stuff like that. And then here in the Bay Area, you know, we have a lot of, um, like we have Reed's Records. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is still around. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then you think about the uh what do you call the race records, right? Um because because the radio shows didn't play black music necessarily. Um Right. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mhm. To me that's what's so, you know, imperative about the conversation that we need to be having today. It's all just for example like how everyone's up in arms because Hallie Bailey is going to be portraying and it has been cast as Ariel in Disney's The Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah. And there's such a huge uproar behind that. Mm-hmm. And to almost, it makes you look and see, was there ever any thought to imagine that there was a world that is diverse, that includes all different types of people, no matter their gender, no matter their um, ethnicity, no matter their physical capacity, Obviously, it, it isn't because for some people, it still resonates for them as this person or this group of people or these groups of people are not considered human. Mm-hmm. So even if something that's as fictional as a mermaid, which we all know is fiction, right? you cannot allow yourself to picture someone with humanistic qualities in a fictional character because you never saw that particular group of people as human. Mm-hmm. Or you, you know what I'm saying. So mm-hmm. it, it just that's why to me I feel like it hairspray is still really relevant because it's the exact same theme of not necessarily seeing or believing or accepting the fact that a different 
group of people lack the very same fundamental right that you have as a being on this earth, which is a human being. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that that's the world that Hairspray is created in. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, this version that I'm in currently has decided to kind of really, um, really mm-hmm. delve deep into that aspect of it. Oh. The social injustices that are happening. Nice. Really kind of bring that to light mm-hmm. um, within our environment of this story. Oh, wow. That's, that should be really interesting to see how that, how, what that looks like and what that sounds like. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. So, because this is a musical, I was wondering, mm-hmm. tell me about some of these <laughs> moments where you're like, oh, I just love it. And you don't have to be on stage to love the moment. Yeah. Um, so tell me about a few moments. Uh-huh. <laughs> a couple of moments. Okay. So, um, there are some really great moments, like run and tell that mm-hmm. seaweed character goes and talks about, it's just this loud, full of soul, mm. full of beauty, all of these beautiful black bodies that are on stage, feeling free, the opportunity mm-hmm. for them to show off what they know how to do best. Mm-hmm. Which is be their true self through dance, right? Through singing, and mm-hmm. that is a number that gets the crowd going. Ah, <laughs> right. It really is. Yeah. Another beautiful moment. Well, before before you go on to your next beautiful moment, I was just thinking, yeah, just in case our audience doesn't know doesn't know the show. So, seaweed is one of um, uh, Motormouth's uh, daughters. Son. Seaweed oh, son. Is a boy. He's a boy. Okay. He's their son. Seaweed Dave Stubbs is my mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. And little Inez is my daughter. Okay. And he, based on not giving away too much of the story, he always, he's considered a bad child. Mm. Because he goes against the grain. Uh-huh. Because he's always trying to, because the way that Motormouth has raised him was to be someone who stands up for who he is and what he believes in. Mm-hmm. And he has a very outgoing personality. And that, those kind of outgoing people attract attention whether it be negative or positive. And because of that, some people perceive it as being negative, and mm. they end up putting him in detention a lot. Oh. Especially special ed. Wow. That is, that's oh, going to really resonate. That's going to really resonate because that, that happens to black boys a lot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You put in special ed because you're different. You can't figure out how to teach, you know, a student who doesn't necessarily learn by being sat at a desk and lecture to. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we all know that educational practices have changed over the years, and they are trying to include different ways of having um, inclusive pedagogy as mm-hmm. far as educational practices are concerned, but there's still a long way to go. Right, right, yeah. And, yeah. and, and then also, you know, if they didn't put the, they don't put the children in detention, um, they medicate them. They medicate them, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, run and tell that. Okay. <laughs> run and tell that is a really rambunctious, high uh, energy. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, um, Dave J. Abrams plays uh, Seaweed. He's a phenomenally gifted actor. Yeah. I worked with him twice before. Oh, nice, nice. What other yeah. What other productions? 
we did hairspray before with, oh. tea, with seaweed, and I was um, a dynamite. And then we did – this is what's kind of funny. We did Sister Act and I, um, at the Berkeley Playhouse. Yeah. I played Dolores and Cartier, and he played he, he, theater, okay? He played my love interest. What? And what? Went, mm-hmm. What? Yeah. That's that's a range. Yeah, that's my a... love interest. Wow. House, uh, in 2017, oh. I played uh, Sweaty Eddie. Uh-huh, yeah. Father, <laughs> and now he's playing my son. Wow, that's really funny. Oh wow. I tell you. Totally, totally. Yeah, we get to use our we get to stretch our imagination. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think about, you know, in the Bay Area just having a name like seaweed. I just think about sort of the health around that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people have, you know, get this little crunchy seaweed in the package. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh wow! Okay, so what other what other moments? <laughs> There's a beautiful moment between um, um, Wilbur and Edna when they sing "Timeless to Me." Yeah, it's about their relationship, and it's so sweet and it's so moving. Mm-hmm. She feels like she's losing her touch, that she's not as attractive. You know, things that we all go through. Mm-hmm. And he reassures her that. No, that's not true. You know, I love you. You're this, you're that. And just to kind of see the two of them in their chemistry, those two actors. Oh, um, nice. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Moving. Mm-hmm. So who are Edna and Wilbur in, in the play? Okay. Edna is played by Scott. His last name is, I think, DiLorenzo. And mm-hmm. then um, Wilbur is played by Paul Plain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 what? Who are they in the in the in the story? And and who are they in the story? Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, they're they're Tracy's parents. Oh. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. So okay. they're um, Edna and Wilbur Turnblad, mm-hmm. Tracy's parents. Okay. Tracy okay. Turnblad's parents. Tracy is the is the main protagonist or the lead character mm-hmm. in the the musical. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Sounds like it's going to be really, really awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've already opened the show. We just opened it this Saturday, and then we had an excellent audience, and it was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you just, I'm telling your audience now, please get your tickets as soon as you can. Oh, you're selling out? This one seems like it's going to sell out. Oh, cool, cool, super. When do you close? We close August 11th. Okay. um, And, yeah. So we have, we were there Thursday through Sunday, Thursday, mm-hmm. Saturday, um, two shows on Saturdays, one on Sunday, mm-hmm. and um, and we we have a show on all night. Right, so nice, we're, nice. We're, yep. Yeah. dot org to get your ticket. Yeah. I do believe that tomorrow is a pay what you can night. Oh. I'm pretty sure. Nice. Oh, that's that's July 11th. Oh, nice, yeah. nice. Well, I have to definitely broadcast this today, <laughs> so people can like say, "Oh, darn, it's twelve. It's too late." Yeah, and you know, it's so interesting, you know, that you all are at the Victoria Theater in San Francisco because um, I don't think I've ever seen any live theater at the Victoria Theater. I only see movies there, um, but yeah. I think yeah. So it's like. That's really cool that you all are 
in a, I mean, because it is a theater theater. How how does how did your company happen to be able you know, to? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really kind of know like how they were able to secure that, but I have seen um, a see a, a a play a musical there before. Oh yeah. Last year I saw um, Jesus Christ Superstar with the all female cast, and that was done by Ray of Light. Nice. Company. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was, I felt really privileged to be able to be in like one of the oldest, you know working theaters in the city mm-hmm. with the phenomenal production and I guarantee you that Hairspray is, is also a phenomenal production and you will not be surprised and just to be able to be in like a living, breathing theater with all of the different souls who have come through and great mm-hmm. just with their presence with their on the stage mm-hmm. it's a really wonderful feeling to be a part of that. Yeah, it's yeah. A historical Mission District where the liveliest, one of the liveliest areas in San Francisco. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Victoria Theater is uh, twenty nine sixty one Sixteenth Street in San Francisco. Yeah. And um, oh wow, it's going to be so awesome. Well, I definitely um, you know, sort of need to get on the list that you are a part of because I um, some of these things you're mentioning, I haven't like for instance, Jesus Christ Superstar. I didn't know about that, nor do I know about the company that put it on. Ray of Light, yeah. Ray of Light, yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Well, this is yeah, the Bay Area Theater community is really thriving. There's so much going on, and one of the things that I really love about the theater community right here in the Bay Area is that we're really trying to make sure that theater is accessible for everybody. Mm-hmm. And a lot of different theater companies are making having accessible nights, like pay what you can nights, you know, and and um, artist nights for people who are also artists themselves and who may mm-hmm. not necessarily have all of the funds. Because I, I relate to that so much. Being an artist <laughs> is not easy. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but um, that's what makes us a unique community. And, and I just feel privileged to be a part of this, um, a part of Bay Area Musicals, a part of the San Francisco Bay Area Theater um, community, and also to be privileged to be able to um, bring Motormouth Motor Maybell to life. And mm-hmm. I feel humbled um, and pretty and blessed to be able to do so. Right, right, yeah. And you've been in uh, Dream Girls, uh, also at yeah. Berkeley Playhouse, and um, and then I must have seen you in um, Dance of the Holy Ghost at Ubuntu. Because, and uh, I don't know who Darlene is off the top of my head. Who is Darlene? Yeah, and I can tell you, Darlene was the daughter. Darlene was. The oh daughter. yeah, who went and um, met her dad? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and so where, what, which particular location? Because I think they've done that play two or three times. Yes. So the last time that it happened, it was. Oh my God. You mean at that um, church? It was at a church. Oh, I was there. Yeah, I, I was at that one. Oh, <laughs> right. And I have, I have the wedding dress on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That was a good production. That was a very good production. Yeah, I love Ubuntu. Um, yeah, and I love, um, the, uh, um, uh, Marcus, uh, Garley, and I'm Garley. so happy. Yeah, cause, um, you know, I had never, I didn't even know Dance, uh, the, um, of the Holy Ghost. And be, you know, before Ubuntu put it on the first time, you know, at yeah. that theater right there, the downtown women's mm-hmm. Y. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was a nice thing. I just love the way 
you know, the venues are specific. And now, you know, with the, um, the flax, um, something, the flax company, you know, the, the new, the new location. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's in downtown Oakland. Um, the flax, I think it's the flax building. Um, that's a nice, nice, intimate space. And that's where I saw, last saw the play that, um, was a retelling of a, um, was it German? Um, trying to remember. Anyway, it was looking at, uh, homelessness. Um, oh, and, yeah. Mm-hmm, but it was, uh, it was a, a reinterpretation of, of one of the classics and it worked out really well. Was it Hamlet? No, not Hamlet, because Hamlet, uh, was at, uh, that was, a, that was another theater that was off on 14th Street that I'd never been in. Another <laughs> building. <laughs> now this one here was, I think was the open, was the debut, um, theater performance at the Flax building. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, wow. Well, I look forward to seeing you again. I definitely want to, Come see your motor mouth, and I'm so sorry I missed your Dolores Van Cartier in Sister Act because um, yeah, I bet you were awesome in that with your your son, um, your son now, and and then your love interest. <laughs> That's so funny. We joke about it all the time. Right? Yeah, because I really, really loved um, theater rhinoceroses. Um, uh, I guess, uh, production of Sister Act. That was really yeah. phenomenal. It was good. Did you get a chance to go or were you acting? Yeah, no, I was in rehearsal. I didn't get a chance to see it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I hear good things about it. Yeah, it was really, really awesome. I just love some of these, these classic plays and these roles, right? When they come back around. Yeah. Cause, cause, um, of course. Yeah, cause you don't see these sometimes that often and some, they're, they're these, these young people that are new. You know, like they just got here and they don't know these characters. Oh, right. Exactly. So it's always, you're absolutely agree. It's always good to bring those back around to get mm-hmm. a fresh new audience and perspective. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you get back on the road and go home because this is your the end of your long day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I guess you don't, you don't perform tonight, but you have a, a no, call yeah. tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll be at the theater right after work. All weekend, um, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. excited about it. Yeah, do you and your daughter ever do anything on stage together? Have you all ever? No, I tried to get her into something that's just not her thing. <laughs> <laughs> she just, she is just not into it, which is totally fine. I, I get that, but at least we tried. Mm-hmm. Right. We tried. I put her in a couple of classes at Berkeley Playhouse. Mm-hmm. I put her in classes at Berkeley Rep. She she just wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's funny. Not our yeah. thing. <laughs> hmm yeah. yeah. But I bet she's proud of her mother. Yeah, I, I drag her to everything I'm I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. like, you're going you're gonna to see. Yeah, I mm-hmm. believe that it's important for, you know, uh, um, children to see their parents living their dreams in whatever capacity that may be and to know that it's attainable for them as well. Mhm. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Particularly um, you know, um uh, you know, black girls and of course. you know, and you know, particularly, you know, when cuz I I was a single mother myself and and I made sure I exposed my daughters to everything. They learned how to fix right. cars. I mean, I had them take class and classes and all kinds of things, you know, carpentry and right. um and car repair and electronics and a lot of math stuff, you know, because 
Yeah. I wanted them to be exposed. You know, like you said, you take her different places. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So then they, when they say I'm not interested, it's because they know what it is. Yeah, what, and they what really this tried, is. and they can say, you know, I tried this, but it's just not for me. But right. But they can say I, I tried it, you know, not because I had it, like. Right, exactly. What have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because unfortunately that happens too much to our children. Um, you know, they don't get out a lot. The right. kid, the schools aren't taking them anywhere, and they're not bringing the resources in. And you know, sometimes parents just don't know because they weren't exposed. That's true. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, it's been really lovely. You know, finally connecting. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. I'm so thankful that we got an opportunity to uh, talk. Mm-hmm. about the show. Right, right. Yeah, because when I saw Harvard University, I'm like, whoa. And I think the week that I was going to talk to you, it was, um, you know, I think it was uh, the day before July 4th. And, yeah. yeah, and, you know, and that's, you know, thinking about Frederick Douglass and, you know, yeah. and his, his, you know, what he said about, you know, what to the American slave is the 4th of July. And I'm like, oh, I wanted right. to get all of that from you because I'm like, she went to Howard. Like, she has a, she has a position. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I just, we could be on the phone for another hour talking about that. (laughs) Well, you can give me a parting thought, and then we can have, you know, definitely talk again at some point because, you know, this is what you do, and you'll let me know where you're going to be next. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, As far as my whole thoughts about a person of African descent, um, celebrating Fourth uh, of July, I believe that it's it's within everyone's right to choose to do so or not, and whether you do or you don't is your own is your own right. You know, no one has the right to kind of condemn you for that. As for my own particular, you know, uh, position, I have been raised to celebrate it and to acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but I've also realized that, you know, the way that the country is, its current political climate is really gives everyone an opportunity to kind of really check in with their beliefs, their traditions, and the questions themselves as to why do you choose to continuously, you know, repeat something or to acknowledge something that doesn't necessarily, you know, is conducive to you. And instead of getting negative or, you know, down about it, just kind of think about, well, what can I do to make sure that, yes, I there is a certain privilege that comes with being an American citizen. But with that being said, how far will my privilege take me being a black woman and what can I do to make sure that I am vying and having a voice for my own people to make sure that we continue to do the work that is very necessary, whether it be through kind of shutting down and uh, stereotypes and bringing new light to old works that may have tried to couch us into stereotypical characters or um, just for, you know, laughs and giggles. Mm-hmm. But you know, to so that's how I that's what I kind of thought about this past Fourth of July. Like, what can I do as a a black woman to make sure that I am really kind of, you know, acknowledging my ancestors and the people who came before me, and to really kind of decide how do I want my own path to be, and you know, the the path of my daughter, and and to make sure that I'm doing what I can to uh, uplift the black community, uplift women, uplift you know, um, to be of um, an American citizen that I can live with. Mm-hmm. Not that anyone else can live with, but that I can be okay with when I lay my head down at night. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. 
That's really great. <laughs> well, once again, it was is really awesome, you know, speaking to you, and I look forward to seeing you, um, you know, intentionally, you know, because like now I can look for you because before when I saw you in uh, <laughs> Dance of the Holy Ghost, I I didn't know I didn't know I didn't know your name. I you know I knew the director and I know the playwright. Right. But now I could like say, yeah, it's like, oh, that's Elizabeth. Yeah. Like, Whoa. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> All righty. And I'll definitely, um, I'm going to see if I can come tomorrow um, because oh, it's so reasonable. Great. And uh, and I'll definitely say hi to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. And for those of you who, for whatever the reason, can't get to the show, I'll also be performing at um, the Central AIDS Walk this Sunday Oh, um, with a host of other people. Oh, is that this weekend? Park. Oh. That's this weekend, yes. So I'm pretty busy this week. Um, and that's going to be happening, I believe, the opening ceremonies begin at around 9.30, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So, so that was last Sunday. And, again, um, you can still make donations to the San Francisco AIDS Foundation or to your – your favorite um, organization that's doing um, work around HIV, AIDS, prevention, education, and treatment and support Um, because, wow, um, unfortunately in 2019 um, we still need to do that work to keep people from getting infected. And for those that are infected, um, you know, definitely offering them support. Um, I want to play a little tiny bit of... In uh, game AIDS in the Black Community. I had an interview with Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, uh, July 10th, many years ago, and and she runs a program out of um, Howard University Medical Center. And this particular program is um, uh, focused on on Black community. And we're not going to be able to play all of it, but we're going to play a little bit before our next guest joins us in the studio. We're going to be talking about. Uh, the Bay Area Playwrights uh, Festival, which is kicking off July 19th, and it's continuing through next week. It's going to be really awesome. Um, I was reading, um, Dr. Liza Fitzpatrick, about um, you um, actually uh, in an article about in-game um, AIDS in the black community. You talk about uh, why people are not getting tested for HIV and um and you're a medical epidemiologist, and you specialize in treating HIV and AIDS, and, um, and you've done some recent research on the problem. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how you have made this a part of the testing aspect, a part of your um, general assessment. Sure. Um, thank you for talking to me. This is a very important issue for me, particularly mm-hmm. because I come into contact with people, unfortunately, when they're very late, in their disease. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, we should not still see people who are diagnosed so late in disease, but we do. And this is why I wanted to understand better why people were coming coming into care so late in their disease. We're, we're still seeing people diagnosed with end-stage AIDS, but then we get them on medication and they do fine. But it's much better for them if they're diagnosed earlier. Mm-hmm. So as I thought about how to to look at this problem, I wanted to start with healthcare providers because most of the people that we are finding late in disease have a healthcare provider. So my question was, well, why aren't they being diagnosed earlier? So what we what we tried to do was get a sense from healthcare providers by asking them directly, 
do you test for HIV routinely? If not, why not? And what are some of the reasons um, or what are some of the barriers to testing people? And we found uh, a variety of explanations from some physicians and some nurses don't don't think their patients have HIV. Some are uncomfortable uh, talking about HIV and talking about anything related to um, sex. We had some providers who were concerned that their patients may go to a different doctor once they were diagnosed and they would not see them anymore, so that would cut into their their revenue. But we we did have some providers who um, who said they tried to do the routine screening, but the insurance companies were not reimbursing for the test and requiring them to fill out paperwork to justify why they were doing an HIV test. And I think in this day and age, we need some policies to address that because that shouldn't be a barrier uh-huh. for for providers to test for HIV. So there were quite a few things we we learned from from our activities around HIV screening for primary care providers. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing, um, the, the range of reasons why not test, mm-hmm. why we don't test. That's interesting. So where, where did you conduct the study? Was it nationwide or was it in a particular region? No, it was right here in Washington, D.C. Okay. I, I run the, um, the local performance site for an AIDS education training center at Howard University. Oh, okay. And through this training site, uh, our mission is to train healthcare providers uh, around HIV. Mm-hmm. So we we use the training center as a mechanism for us to seek additional funding to specifically study this topic, which is why healthcare providers do or don't integrate HIV screening into their routine practice. Mm-hmm. And we receive funding from Gilead Sciences, which is a pharmaceutical company but they're also very interested in scaling up HIV screening across the country. And with the funds that we received from Gilead Sciences, we were able to conduct these additional activities to to talk to healthcare providers about their practices. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Willie, you're, you're definitely aware of the International HIV AIDS Conference. Um, is it next month, August? It's actually this month. Oh, this it's in month. about three weeks. It right. Starts, uh, <laughs> it starts officially on the 22nd. Okay, yeah, yeah, um, because um, uh, a lot of the folks that are in the film uh, Endgame, um, uh, AIDS in the black community, are going to actually be there. Jesse was telling me about how he's going to be flying into, I believe, Atlanta and then taking a train in, and there's going to be like a march on Washington um, symbolic of the one with Dr. King looking at ending um, HIV and AIDS. Um, I was wondering about uh, the International uh, HIV and AIDS Conference and and sort of how, uh, you know, your work is, um, I guess, it's, 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 it has to do with our community, you know, the black community in particular, and not just the black community, but, you know, people not being tested. Um, but this film is about, you know, why in Alameda County, for instance, there has been a state of emergency for HIV and AIDS for, gosh, about 20 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like, that's crazy that people are still, yeah. you know, there's still new diagnoses um, every day um, mm-hmm. in our community. So it's really amazing. And then I think about HIV and AIDS abroad. I think about HIV and AIDS in Africa. 
specifically, but not just there. I mean, people are still getting the disease, and um, uh, and these myths are still abounding. So I was wondering if you could talk about, are you going to be presenting at the conference? And um, and sort of what are your hopes for, you know, being able to get together with your colleagues at an international forum? Because we haven't had the conference here in many, many years um, because of the of the rule of the stipulation that people that were HIV positive could not, uh, they would not be granted visas to come into the United States, and that has actually been changed by our current President Obama. Mm-hmm. Well, I will be presenting uh, at a few different um, sessions at the conference, so mm-hmm. I am excited for the opportunity to talk about some of the work that we're doing here in Washington, D.C. around HIV and also community engagement around HIV because I think that's what it's going to take us to address this epidemic. We talk to patients about why they come late for for treatment, mm-hmm. and a lot of it has to do with stigma, and I think people not wanting to talk about HIV in the community and a lot of the denial out in the community about HIV, we have to educate the community about this disease and that it's treatable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if people have AIDS anymore, so a lot of people are confused about the difference between HIV and AIDS. And we want people to know that it doesn't matter anymore if you have AIDS because the medications are excellent. So I can treat someone just as effectively who has AIDS as I could someone who has HIV. So I hope that some of these messages um, leave the conference and are are filtered into the community. Unfortunately, the conference has limited access to the community, or community members have limited access to the conference but I think moving forward, the march that you talked about, I think that is really important because it is an activity that happens in the community whereby people in the community can take notice and maybe learn something about HIV. The The conference is an important vehicle, I think, for networking, as you talked about, but I would like to see in the future how we could more effectively utilize so many of our resources to address some of the issues that are barriers to HIV prevention and engagement and care, such as stigma mm-hmm. that I've already talked about, yes. um, but also just helping people understand how you access uh, care and treatment for HIV. And not just HIV, for for chronic diseases in general. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I know um, a lot of times... Um, when when there's poverty or, you know, the person is dual, triple diagnosed, there's, you know, there might be substance abuse, poverty, there might be some mental illness, depending on, you know, sometimes people are homeless and that sort of messes with you, you know, psychologically as well as physically and emotionally. And and so the presenting symptoms are the ones that are, are identified first. Okay, we got to have a place to live. I mean, okay, I might be HIV positive or... But, you know, I'm also malnourished, and and I know that that's not something that's unique to just Ameri- the American community. It's also, you know, indicative of uh, the way that chronic illness is handled internationally as well. Um, if a person is homeless, then they need to get housed, and then they have a place to be able to, you know, cook their food because nutrition, nutrition is important, and then go to the doctor. So I wonder if you could talk about, um, accessibility of care um, because at, at one point I know in Alameda County um, this is going way back because um, I have um, 
background in HIV AIDS um, prevention education, uh, particularly around volunteer um, recruitment that's reflective of the communities uh, where the disease, disease was moving, which were people of color, uh, so African-American, mm-hmm. Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native mm-hmm. American, um, and I think I got everybody. <laughs> and um, and so, um, so I was looking at um, recruiting volunteers to um, as a clearinghouse for the organizations that that was their primary clientele, and uh, and we looked at things like that. And um, and but at that time in Alameda County, people actually had to go to San Francisco to to access care because there was no AIDS office. The Alameda County wasn't necessarily looking at um, prevention of the disease, education, or services. Mm-hmm. Uh, until um, some really wonderful activists uh, like Gary Harmon, who is no longer with us, you know, really, you know, pressured the health department, the public health department, to to address this in our in our community. So, quality of life, um, affordable care, those kind of things. I was wondering if you could talk about that as well as prevention and. Um, Prevention and education, and and what you're doing there at Howard, uh, yeah, some of the models, and I'm wondering, like, are they unique to Howard and in Washington D.C. area where you're working, or are some of them being replicated? Like, do you have like a cohort where you all um, talk as um, regions, you know, about the work that you're doing? There, there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve our cooperation mm-hmm. and communication across the different programs and activities in Washington D.C. The we're we're fortunate in Washington D.C. that access to medications for HIV is not um, a big barrier because the city provides um, provides the medications for people that don't have insurance, but because D.C. has engaged in Medicaid expansion, those people who didn't have uh, insurance previous to the expansion are now being um, added to uh, the Medicaid rosters, and so they have access to medications. But even those who don't, we don't have an ADAP waiting list, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. Mm -hmm. So for people who need the medication, they have access to it. And fortunately, our health department has really uh, supported the the idea of a program strategy that provides a medical home for most of our patients. So what does that mean? That means if you come to one site, you should be able to have someone who can help you with their mental health services, someone who can help you with your social services, such as food and housing, um, just as you described. And you can also get your your medical care there. So we're trying to focus on providing all of these services at one site. I I don't know that this is unique to Washington, D.C. I think this model exists um, at different places around the country, but we don't do a good good job of sharing best practices, which is another, I think, important purpose of the international meeting because it's a mechanism well, that was um, a voice from the archives that, again, that was uh, Dr. Um, Lisa Fitzpatrick, or I called her Liza. I'm not certain which one is correct, but I have it written, Lisa Fitzpatrick, um, uh, talking about in-game AIDS in the black community. And if you want to hear the rest of that interview, um, you can check out the archives because we um, have a really big conversation um, 
up ahead with um, regarding the 2019 Bay Area Playwrights Festival, which the theme is Witness the Power of Truth. And um, so we have two of our guests in the studio. Um, um, I know one of them is... um, uh, how do you pronounce how how do you pronounce your first name, uh, Miss Turner? Oh, Delicia. Delicia. Okay, <laughs> I didn't want to mess it up. Okay, Delicia um, Turner uh, Sonnenberg. Is that how you do the last name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And we and we also have in the studio. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't recognize that particular number. So who else is in the studio with us? Uh, this is Claudia Alec. I'm the dramaturg. Oh, super, super. Yeah, I'm just thinking how we have, like, the whole team uh, <laughs> for um, for Flex. That's so cool. Um, the playwright hasn't joined us yet, but you two are in the studio, so that's real exciting. Um, are you um, are you returning to Bay Area Playwrights Festival as um, directors and dramaturg, or is this your first time um, with uh, – with this uh, playwright, uh, Kendris Jones, were you ever there at the Play- Playwrights Festival uh, with another director? A playwright, sorry. This is my second time at the festival. I did it 16 oh. years ago with a different playwright. This is my first time working with Kendris Jones, and I'm thrilled okay. to do it because I think she's, is an exciting uh, American playwright. Oh, wow. How many years ago did you say? <laughs> 16. Whoa, that is, that's great. That is so great. And I think this might be Amy. Good morning. Is this you, Amy? Uh, I'm here, yeah. Um, yeah, Delicia. Oh, good. Uh, came in and directed the Marcus Gardley uh, Marcus Gardley play the first time we had the opportunity to oh. work with him. Yeah. Oh. Oh, so yeah, long ago. Yeah, it was like. Yeah, and that's when you had uh, Cable's art, right? We had what? Cable Cable Conte's art as a part of the um, I don't know yes. if it was part of the set, but it was in the in it was in the um, building. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, because it was um, like Sun something. What was the title of that Garley play? Because that was my first time um, seeing him as well, meeting meeting Marcus, and who is like heck of famous now. Um, but, yeah, what was the name of the play? Do you remember? Sun Falling in the Mouth. Right, It was an right, Icarus right. Uh, story. Right. Oh, that is so cool. Wow. Well, Amy, since you're on it, I was thinking perhaps you could maybe tell us about, um, you know, as the um, the outgoing artistic director, um, and you've done so much uh, for for the Bay Area Playwrights Festival in your during your tenure. And and how long um, were you with, or have you been with <laughs> the Bay Area Playwrights Festival? <laughs> uh, I've been here for 19 this is my 19th festival Wow! as artistic director I actually prior to that was on the selection committee and worked with Jane Wenger who was the uh, artistic director when I 
first started working at Players Center. So it's been quite oh. a while. Yeah, yeah. We're so happy to have you come on, you know, um, every year that we can uh, get you um, to talk about the festival. And uh, so so tell us about this one with the theme. Um, uh, i trying to think. I just read the theme, and I just lost the theme. Yes. What is the witness theme this year? The and, and talk about it. Truth. Yes. Yeah, witness right, the right. power of truth is the theme. Mm-hmm. It, it actually, the theme kind of emerged from the plays themselves. So, mm-hmm. as you know, we've talked about in the past, we don't choose our work according to theme. Uh, we choose the work according to the, the voices of the writers and um, the singularity of their voices and their position as uh, essentially emerging writers on the field. Um, and that's our primary sort of lens through which we, you know, pick the, the work. But then themes definitely emerge amongst all of, the play, uh, all of the plays, and they kind of speak to one another. And this was felt like a, not only, you know, a, an important theme and something that, that you know, fits, across all six plays, but also an important thing to talk about uh, with regard to the larger political landscape that we're living in, living through, enduring at the moment. <laughs> right, right, yes. Mm-hmm. And and so how, how did you happen to, um, you know, sort of for our audience that might not be familiar with the process, um, oh, here is Candris, um, the uh, playwright. Super. Good morning. How are you? Candris, is that you? Oh, this is Candice. Candris and I were Candace. on the other call line. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh but yeah, Candice. Right, yes, is sorry. coming over to this, too. Yes, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've got so many numbers to sort of sort through. Okay. And um, we see. have a couple more um, people on the line, I think. Terrence, are you there? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think everybody might be with us now. Um, yep, this is Terrence. Yeah. Oh, super. Great, Terrence. Glad to have you with and us. I, and I think Claudia, um, Claudia Alec is here as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. Claudia's here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I think we're all here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this time. We called well, another maybe, number, so we were talking to each other for a second, but now we're right. here. Oh. We're here. Oh, okay. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, Amy, are you at the bar station or something? I am. So I should probably... Um, Probably, you know, just give you a, uh, a quick overview and then get off the phone. Um, I'll, I'll try oh, you to could go just, you could just you could just you could just mute your um, just mute it. But yeah, first give us a, give us a quick overview, and um, yeah, and and talk about okay. how um, how the how the current playwrights um, you know are a part of this festival mm-hmm. and yeah. what your goals are so, for the organization. Wonderful. Uh, we'll do so. Um, the six plays on this year's festival were selected from approximately 700 submissions. We have a national, large national reading committee. Uh, we read for approximately six months um, out of the year. And um, 
and that occurs pretty much every year. And then the plays are uh, um, uh, the plays that rise to the top as semifinalists are approximately 140 of those plays, and that those plays are then reviewed by uh, another set of readers and brought down to um, approximately 40 finalists. Uh, from those plays, they're, they're, the plays are then read by everybody on the committee, all 40 plays, and um, uh, we select um, six from that batch. Um, two need to be local writers at least, and at least two need to be writers who are really early in their careers, maybe emerging out of a grad program or uh, college age writers, um, that kind of um, scenario. So um, yeah, and then we also are always look at you know having the uh, plays be very very diverse within the context of their aesthetic. So you'll have a play that's very poetic and almost dreamlike, and you'll have another play that's much uh, much more naturalistic and real. And another play that you know is a little more ironic in tone, um, and we even have a play that uh, that is a uh, in the Grand Guignol um, uh, aesthetic <laughs> on this year's festival. Hmm. What do you mean when you say that? It's it's a, a form of French farce that involves uh, horror. Horror and, okay. uh, and 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 humor. I mean, like highly. It's very, very, very dark comedy. It's mm, extreme mm. comedy um, and involves horror and blood and, and it's all sort of a joke. Mm, okay. Yeah. And and funny. the uh, the playwrights that we have um, on the air presently, um, uh, Terrence Anthony and. Uh, uh, Candace Jones, um, you know Terrence Anthony's um, "The House of the Negro Insane" and Candace Jones' um, "Flex." Where where do they fit within those categories you just mentioned? Um, well, Terrence's play is a, uh, is largely naturalistic and historical drama, with some magical surreal elements in it. And <laughs> Candace's play <laughs> also has a kind of naturalistic. Uh, uh, in other words, the characters are, are really are talking, speaking to one another in real time about real things. Um, however, it's structured as uh, a basketball game in four quarters. So its structure is very playful and theatrical. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, no, I meant them as as, as playwrights insofar as you mentioned someone living here because um, Terrence oh. um, is here in, yes. in Oakland, right? Or That's right. Are you yeah, in Oakland so Terrence still? Is a um, local. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Kendra okay. uh, hail has been hailing from Arkansas. She can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Super. Super. Well, welcome everyone. This is so cool. Um, I was thinking um, maybe we could just sort of jump right into the conversation and um, maybe um, Kendra's week we could start with you and your team because you have a great team on here with us. This is so cool, you know, your um, your director and dramaturg. Um, and I um, was wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and maybe um, maybe um, 
the director, maybe you could talk about, um, maybe give us a synopsis of of the play, and and then uh, maybe Claudia, you could talk about your relationship um, with one another. We've got the playwright, we've got the director, we've got the dramaturge. So I guess I'll start. This is Kendris. I guess I'll start. Um, so um, I am from Arkansas. I'm recently located or relocated to Minneapolis. Um, I received a fellowship through the Playwright Center called the Many Voices Fellowship. Um, and I have been writing plays now. I started off as a poet. Um, I started writing poetry at a very, very young age. And um, I found over the years, though, that I really um, gravitate more toward storytelling in the form of playwriting. I mean, stories can are always told through poetry, but I um, tend to gravitate toward playwriting because I do like the theatrical elements. I do um, like the process of coming up with a story and then eventually collaborating with the other brilliant voices that show up in the room. I really like that process. So um, right now, Flex is my second play. Um, I've written another play a few years ago, but Flex is my, like, my my second thing that um, I just, it's a story that I always wanted to tell. I play basketball from the time, again, from the time as far back as I can remember, up until I was about 21 or 22 years old, I played a little bit of college basketball. And I found that the narratives that I recall from playing basketball, especially my high school years, were really singular and significant. And I just really felt compelled to try to, in some way, relate those stories. And also it's a story that um, we don't hear too many stories about women in rural Arkansas in the south, from the South. So mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited about. And I'm also, um, I feel like it's partially my responsibility to tell women uh, stories about those people and especially, you know, those women. Right, yeah, and I was just thinking, um, I don't know if it was coincidental or not, but you know the um you know the women uh basketball tournament is in the news right now right and 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 women basketball players are in the news right now, and it's just uh it's real um uh you know has a currency you know that that your play is is being staged well being you know read presently. Mm-hmm. And, and this is also part of the news um, right now. So I don't know if um, if that was if the uh, <laughs> if the jurors were thinking about that when they decided. It's like, oh, we got to have this play because da da da, or it just worked out really um, well like that. And then as, <laughs> as 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 a writer, I was just wondering sort of the resonance of you know your creation in in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. So, how? As I've been thinking about writing this play for some years. I actually started writing it in 2017. So, mm. um, I the the 
yeah, the the current news headlines don't I do think that um this play is very important in this moment in time. It's set in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So I really, really feel as though a lot of the movement and I and I actually don't know don't know of the tournament. I don't keep up I really don't keep up with women's basketball right now, which is kinda like I don't know, kinda weird. Um but I mm-hmm. and I but um what was I about to say? I do think that a lot of the rhetoric around women and young girls that we that has that has come into fruition today, from my perspective, especially in the South, a lot of that rhetoric got started in the '90s, um, and a lot a lot of the rhetoric um, as far as you know women being comfortable with their bodies and um, ownership of our bodies and our narrative. Um, Because maybe because I grew up in the nineties, a lot of that, um, a lot of that conversation really started for me in the nineties. And, you know, it was around, around the same time that the WNBA um, was commissioned and had, had its first draft. Um, So it just all kind of, you know, Falls in line, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And and your um your first play, if I remember from the interview that's on the website, um for Bay Area, um, Bay Area um Playwrights Festival, um mm-hmm. was called um Crack Baby. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a what an evocative title. Is it about? Yeah. Was it about that? Yeah. It, <laughs> yes. It's yeah. Um. Well, again, growing up, growing up in the '90s, um, during the um, during kind of like during the height of the crack epidemic, again, it's one of those mm-hmm. things that it happens. It happened all over the United States and made major headlines, and it also affected rural Arkansas. So, I'm sure everyone can, um, if you were, if you lived in a black or brown community that was deeply affected by the crack epidemic, you uh, possibly remember the stories of first people questioning, what is this thing? What is crack? And what is it? And how, and how, why is this thing, you know, affecting our communities? Because a lot of people that got addicted um, didn't know what it was. They didn't know what they were smoking. They were just partying. They were like really innocent young kids. And um, but this the the story that I tell it focuses on um, a young girl emeritus who was raised in a house that, for all intents and purposes, was um, was a was a crack house. Um, not like the like what we see on New Jack City, <laughs> um, but um, and through interviews and stuff and people that were. Um, kind of close to me, I talked to them about their own experiences. And one person that I interviewed, her mother sold drugs. Um, so she grew up um, and was one in my small town, one of the main drug dealers in my small town. So um, I asked her questions about, you know, her experiences and stuff. And it was like, for the main one way that the main character in my play, whose name is Emeritus, and um, the individual that I interviewed, one way that their lives parallel is that um, Emeritus did not know that her grandmother um, 
um, sold drugs for a very long time. And this young woman, she did not know, even though it happened right there in her house, um, that her mother sold drugs for quite some time. And she would do things to hide this from her. Um, so, um, and, and from, well, from all her kids. And then as they got older, they um, may have participated in that, in, in those um, transactions or whatever themselves. But the story of Crack Baby, it follows, um, it is a critique of the public education school system in the United States of America through the experiences of a child who has been labeled a crack baby. <laughs> and, um, and it really kind of focuses on um, more so on school than the home and how these kids these were labeled crack babies, and a lot of them um, – Yes, they grew up in this environment, but they were not as problematic as the headlines would tell us. Um, like there were there were like headlines that I found from the New York Times that basically said that these kids were subhuman or another kind of being. It was just ridiculous um, or, and really sad. And then um, it was just, you know, I, I guess the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> Um, it started out that people were really concerned about these children, but at the end of the day, um, it kind of, it, it turned into the labeling of a lot of children who sometimes did not get the help that they needed um, or get the proper help that they needed um, because people made assumptions about their narratives. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, thank um, you. Thank you so much, Candice. Um, I was thinking um, instead of instead of going to um, to Ms. Turner um, and uh, and Ms. Alec, why don't we um, we go to Terrence and then come back? So, Terrence, um, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, Terrence Anthony, um, your play is "The House of the Negro Insane." Um, I, I like the title. Um, <laughs> tell us about yourself and and your work. This is. Um, I was reading about another play that you wrote in your interview called Burners, and uh, it sounds really fa- fascinating. Uh, it's a sci-fi dystopia, I believe, and uh, and you you even you know sort of uh, made drew a comic book and you gave them out at the at the, um, the at the play, uh, which sounds really cool. And I don't know if we're going to be so lucky to have another comic book edition for the House of the Negro Insane, but uh, definitely um, that'd be a great. Pleasant surprise. <laughs> if you illustrate. <laughs> yeah, that would be, but no, I'm never doing that again. Um, it was a lot of work, um, and with the with with burners, yeah, it was a sci-fi dystopian. Um, it really lent itself to to a graphic novel to the to that form, and um, it was also kind of cool to be able to just explore a world that you know was really rooted in um where this country where i see this country going but also you know very very um very futuristic and something that that i felt kind of added to the to the production where people could come out after the show and then pick up a comic book that visualizes sort of what happens outside because the whole play is based in a 
in a depot. Um, it's like one set. Um, so you get a sense of sort of what's what's happening through the characters. And then, um, yeah, people had the option to come out, get a comic book, see which, and the comic book was set um, outside of the depot and was able to, you know, draw the things that we didn't have the budget to uh, put in the, in the play. <laughs> but yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually had time to do a House of the Negro Insane comic book. Um, maybe, maybe in the future might, tr- might take a crack at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about tell us about um, you know this work and and your um, uh, you know your your life as uh, you know as a playwright and um, sort of why where did the story the House of the Negro and Saint come from and 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 you know why why write you know why why is this your medium because it sounds like you have others that you're equally good mm-hmm. at. Um, I think, uh, definitely I heard what Kendra said about the, um, you know, being theater, being a real, um, communal experience where you, you are able to work with other folks, bring other voices into your work in ways that other mediums don't. So, um, you know, I enjoy drawing, I'm okay at it, but. Um, in the end, I really get excited by um, the idea of, you know, sitting in a room for weeks and writing something and then taking that and bringing it to other people to, to put it out in the world and, um, and see, what, see how their experiences um, add to your own work um, and voices. And, yeah, to me, that's, that's what's special about theater, and that's why um really that's that's the thing that that really inspires me the most right now as a as a form um with with house of the negro insane um it was interesting cuz i've i've kind of avoided doing um historic dramas and many of i i avoid seeing a lot especially when they're you know um, around black folk and slave stories um, it's, it can be frustrating to feel like this is, that's the only time we, we as black folk are, are depicted in historic dramas. And, you know, as, uh, as a younger man, just being like, I don't want to hear no more slave stories. I'm done with that. Let's, you know, let's, let's talk about something new. Um, but when, uh, but yeah, I was reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks years ago. And in that book, there's a chapter um, where the author and the daughter of Henrietta Lacks, who, who was the woman where, uh, that, that um, they farmed basically without her knowledge, the first um, um, cancer cells, that, uh, DNA cells that, that, um, you know, that, that were used to... Um, to yeah, to sorry, I'm blanking on it. But she was um, her daughter was committed to Crownsville um, Hospital, then which was built as the uh, hospital for the Negro Insane of Maryland at the turn of the century. And there was one just one chapter in the book where they talk about that and they go to find out what happened to her daughter who ended up dying there. It sounded like she she was committed because of uh, she had epilepsy or some kind of seizure. Um, 
and that sparked um, sparked my interest, and I started researching what these hospitals um, were built for, when they were built, sort of the history around around these hospitals that were specifically for African Americans and came, were were built in the Jim Crow era around the turn of the century, um, you know, 40, 40 years or so after slavery was abolished, um, and really was to me just really signified sort of the way white supremacy has weaponized, you know, mental health when it comes to black folks and um, another way of controlling us and keeping us in line. Um, And to me, it was also like uh, exciting to explore narratively the era, you know, post post uh, slavery and pre civil rights which, you know, I do think has, has been underrepresented um, in a lot of, lot of historic dramas and narratives um, and sort of, you know, what, what went on be, between those eras is, is something that I uh, continue to want to um, explore in my plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Gila cell, um, you know, um, they even took her name out of it so you couldn't find her. Um, that that story is just really, really phenomenal. And I don't know if you had an opportunity um, at the uh, BAM PFA, the Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive, actually in an exhibit uh, quite a while ago, I don't remember when, but they actually had the Gila cells there. And and I went to that exhibit, and then later on, mm. the book The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks came out, you know, um, by uh, Rebecca Sloot. And I'm like, oh my God, I saw those cells. Um, yeah, and you all probably know the uh, the Oprah um, uh, produced um, film uh, that was on HBO, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, which, and then they also have documentaries. But yeah, why don't um, why don't we um, we open it up to um, the uh, support folks, um, you know, the directors and the dramaturgs. So, uh, Candace uh, C. Jones, do you want to talk about um, uh, the House of the Negro Insane and, and what does it mean to uh, be the dramaturg and what attracted you to this particular work? Sure. Um, I'm actually the director on that piece, not the dramaturg. Oh, um, oh sir. Yeah. Oh, yes, you're right. Oh, you are. Sorry. Yeah, you know, I, I really love plays that have a sense of potency and relevance to our time now. And I think Terrence does a really beautiful job of threading the past and the present and a little bit of a nod to the future and, you know, where we're going and how we can um, look at black people from uh, a lens of empathy um, and, you know, how society may, may deem these folks in this play is insane. But in actuality, we're really getting to the deep well of their emotionality and their inner lives. Um, so that's what attracted me to the piece. And then also just the magical realism and the elements of, um, style that that Terrence embodies in the work, um, in the way that he has these coffin montages where the lead character is building is building these coffins, but there are sections in the scenes that kind of stand out beyond the the natural real time of the play. So it's it's really fantastic um, 
in the way that this like horrific story comes about really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering. Um, I don't know if it's possible, but I was wondering if um, maybe you could sort of tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the characters in the play, um, how it's going to be staged, um, like how many how many actors. Maybe for our audience that's never been to um, a uh, a San Francisco um, Playwrights Festival, like sort of what what's going to happen. And, and and sort of and what what do you expect to get from um, the experience, Terrence? I mean, why is it? Why did you want to have your play <laughs> a part of the festival? Um, I mean, the Bay Area, Bay Area Play, Playwrights Festival has got a really great rep. Um, I actually just moved to the Bay Area um, a year and a half ago. <clears throat> me, so. And I'd known about the festival and had submitted earlier plays years back um, as well. To, um, and it's, it's it's known for really supporting playwrights and a lot of, you know, buzz around it. Of course, obviously, there's a lot of uh, amazing playwrights that have gone on to bigger things that have uh, been, been through the Playwrights Festival. So I um, was really amazed to to move to the Bay Area and then be able to uh, finally participate in the festival. And I think for me, one thing that's, that's really great is um, having two readings during the festival. So, you know, having, having a chance to, to hear it in front of an audience um, and see what works, what doesn't work, and then be able to go away and, and do some rewrites or do some changes and, and experiment and then hear what happens with a completely different audience um, is uh, something yeah. that's really exciting to me. Um, it's always great to, to just be able to have people uh, experience the work as you're, as you're developing it. And um, there's no, no substitute really for what, uh, what a live crowd is going to um, bring and get, or have quite, you know, or not get um, while you're while you're developing the work. So it's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, Candice, um, who did you select the actors that are going to be um, in in the play? You know, in the reading. No, I um, didn't. The um, Oh, sorry, Candice or Candris? <laughs> no, um, let's see, Candice. Um, director, director Candace of or playwright. Direct, yeah, director <laughs> Candice. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, I didn't. Um, I'm actually from the New York area, so the Bay Area Playwrights Festival um, did all the casting for us. Um, so I'm meeting a lot of folks for the first time. There's one actress, uh, Santoya Fields, who I knew from New York and saw her work. So um, I'm excited to work with her for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, um, uh, Candris, um, playwright, (laughs) Um, maybe uh, you could talk about um, your relationship with um, uh, your dramaturge and and director and, um, you know, sort of what your hopes are for, um, for the festival, um, your readings um, one and two. Oh well, um, 
as far as the relationship with Delicia, um, my director, and Claudia, my dramaturg, the, we were, um, for the lack of better words, matched up um, by school and the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. It's a lot of feedback in the background. But, um, yeah, so this last week was, we, we'd had some prior phone conversations um, about casting and things, but last week was our first time all meeting one another, and I feel like I have a great team. Um, I feel like, um, you know, Delicia is, she she's, um, both are very smart. Um, Delicia is a director, is very smart. She sees things with a keen eye, um, and so does Claudia. She knows how to facilitate things. She knows how to um, she she knows how to you know pull things together, and she always has like advice waiting for you, <laughs> but she's not too cushy with it. So I really really appreciate the the fact that I have met these these two women in this process because both I believe are really amazing in their own um, singular ways. Great, great. Uh, this is um, yeah. Are they both here? Yes. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Claudia. Yes. Yeah, at this time, I, I'd love to speak. Um, uh, oh, yes, please. Originally, how I, you know, how I came to, like, join this project, um, I'm not only mm-hmm. the dramaturg for Flex, I'm also uh, consulting for the entire festival on their community engagement activities. I first came oh. to work with the Bay Area Playwrights Festival last year. I led uh, a, one of their engagement activities. I co-led it with uh, Daniel Banks. It was on decolonizing theater practice. Um, then I was mm-hmm. having this amazing conversation with Amy. I've been studying this festival for years because it is a really dynamic theater. Many, many, many of the plays that are um, um, explored in this festival go on to have productions all over the United States. And my experience at this retreat, which was three days in the woods with no Wi-Fi, listening to the playwrights read their plays aloud, and this incredible brain trust of so many talented directors and dramaturgs, just so many smart brains from around the country and the Bay Area. It was just a dynamic, exciting experience. So I feel like you know, the, the, there's a great amount of beauty and, and rigor that's going to happen for the playwrights and their work, and it's going to grow. But there's also a lot of really beautiful relationships being built as well. Um, and I did want to make sure that we talked about with, uh, with Flex uh, and, and I think also with, with, with um, um, House of the Negro Insane, just the fact that these are plays that are about justice issues as well. So they're not only really entertaining, really gripping. Um, Terrence's play was one where I found it to be talking about things that were traumatizing, but it did not traumatize us. It, it, it does that magically. Um, and it talks about it, – it also, I think, it has resonance with some of the current issues we have today with ableism and the country not only being – aggressively anti-black, but actually attaching that to um, a, a ableist um, anti-healthcare initiative. Um, and then, of course, with Flex, you've got this really strong theme of women's rights and women's reproduction rights. And it's not only poetically a gorgeous play, and the characters are so much fun and delightful to hang out with, but, the, but what they're talking about is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Yeah, are you, um, is there any special um, community engagement 
connected to this year's theme that um the power oh, of, of choice. Well, what um, do you I can, say I can speak others? to that. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Claudio. You can talk no, no, about please, the underpinning Amy, and then I'll Amy, Amy please, you oh. and your artistic director are gonna be able to speak um, about this really well. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so so uh, what we've done this year and last year is that we have engaged with um, various uh, individuals who are content, we call them content experts, essentially. But there are people in our community who are, are not in the theater necessarily, although some of them are, but they have um, experiences and expertise within the context of the theme or the subject matter or the, or the political uh, milieu of these plays. And they will are coming each each play will be um, uh, after each play we will have one, one of these individuals will, will present to the audience and and uh, engage in a conversation with the playwright so they'll present a, a, some contextual information about uh, any number of themes in any particular play and then talk a little bit about how those themes and and issues show up in the play and talk to the playwright about how how that works and what uh what they were after and just offer a whole different kind of window into the the underpinnings and the subjects of these plays so for house of the negro insane uh this week uh Redessa jones who's a celebrated mm-hmm. artist and has been working within the context of the prison system for a very long time and has mm-hmm. recently uh, engaged with uh, the whole issue of mental health in the black community and mental health within the context of generational trauma. And so she is going to be there um, and witness the play and talk with the artist and then afterwards do a presentation with Terrence and uh, Claudia. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, nice. When is this? Yeah. Uh, right after the play. Uh, at, the play is being read at 4 o'clock on Saturday, the, 20, the 20th, and then right afterwards, okay. Vanessa will be there to present. Um, hmm. And can we just do a shout-out to Ike Webster? He's the um, associate producer who's been gathering just these amazing um, speakers to, to join us after the play. And I really feel like it's going to be some dynamic yeah. exchange with the folks he's curated. Mm-hmm. I completely mm-hmm. agree. Yeah. Ivan Webster, <laughs> up and coming theater artist. Um, he, uh, so, um, and then after Flex is a, a woman named uh, Linda Jones, who's actually a reproductive rights uh, activist particularly reproductive rights in the black community for women in the black community. She, uh, um, she's a doula, she's a health practitioner and, and uh, she is going to be um, presenting after that play. Hmm. Um, as the play um, and seven twenty. Um, wow. That's going to be At great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 8 p.m. Okay. So those are some of the right. engagement activities that we're doing. Anyway, um, on to the playwrights. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, uh, let's see. Um, Ms. Turner Somberg, um, did you want to um, continue um, the conversation about, about Flex and, and your role? 
as um as director? Uh sure. I um uh we uh, we we so Flex, like Kendra said, is set in the nineties and it's sort of at the at the beginning of the WNBA, which inspired a, a lot of young black women to see a future for themselves in particular in in basketball. So Kendra's play, uh, just a brief synopsis, this a, a, a basketball team in rural Arkansas, the Lady Train, are determined to get to the state finals so that they can maybe be scouted for a future in the WNBA for some of them. But they have to withstand um, uh, some ex- external and internal pressures that threaten to tear the team apart and them apart um, personally. One of the things that I love about Kendrick's play is, is like she articulated, uh, you really get this sense that these young women, even though they can't define like their politics, this is this, um, I love how they're beginning to understand themselves, their bodies, their lives in a larger context. Um, and I find Kansas's voice um, uh, specific and poetic. Um, the, like Amy said, you know, the, the structure of the play is set up in quarters. So we get a lot of actual basketball in the play, which is fun, and we get to see young women be uh, expert at something um, and owning it and using that talent to um, imagine a better future for themselves, owning that talent to, to, um, as a way of maybe out of this small rural Arkansas town. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And, Kendra, did you want to add anything to that or uh, Claudia? No, I, I like the question, Delicia. Yeah, I, I, I think the only thing I would shout out is just a shout out for the for the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. What I love about collaborating with the Bay Area Playwrights Festival is that it brings together a bunch of really dynamic, exciting artists. So I've had the joy of now being introduced to uh, Candrice's work, and I'm going to be able to talk all over the country and, and tell people about this amazing play. And I already have started because it's a really, it's a really good piece of work. Um, and I, I got to say, I, I'm selfish about the play that I'm specifically dramaturging, but I, I also want to say all of the plays in this year's festival are incredibly strong, really powerful uh, pieces of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering if um, if you could tell our audience. Um, the other the other date that um, they can catch um, uh, the um, Candace's play uh, flex um, so 4 p.m. on 7:20 and that's going to be at the Petrero stage in San Francisco um, and and when is it going to um, be when is it going to be have its second reading? Yeah, well actually flex uh, is at 8 p.m. on Saturday this on the 20th. Oh, so right, it's right, right. Evening, Sorry. Yes, right. evening show. Mm-hmm. It's okay. And then on yeah. Sunday, July 28th, it's a matinee at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're going to have a high school basketball coach uh, speaking after, Ooh. girls basketball coach, speaking after the play uh, with Candrace and uh, Claudia. Um, oh, that's awesome. I, 
I'd love to talk a little bit about the actors for both House of the Negro Insane and Flex. I mean, one of the joys, my the joys that I have of uh, being the artistic director is getting to meet the the uh, incredible um, range of actors we have in the Bay Area. And for Flex, uh, it's a it's a cast of um, six black women. And walking in the room yesterday was absolutely just one of a magical experience mm. <laughs> uh, of, of this incredibly wide range of women sitting in this room together that are bringing together a, a huge array of talent and skill and joy. Um, uh, it, it was a kind of overwhelming and wonderful. So audiences can, can really expect some kick-ass acting um, from, from that company. And likewise from, um, from House of the Negro Insane, some of the most uh, prestigious actors in, in the Bay Area are working on the festival this year. And mm-hmm. um, both plays uh, embody that um, powerfully. Um, so uh, I'm very excited about what audiences can expect, the, the kind of talent they can expect, even from a reading. Um, mm, right. Yeah. Can you tell us their names? Um, you know, um, for the different the um, two different plays. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, maybe somebody can do that who can actually look at it while. We're on the phone. That's a little bit challenging for me at the moment. Um, oh well, I I have the ones for Flex: um, Paige Myers, Summer Brown, Regina Monique, and Halili Knox. I know Paige and I know Halili. I'm not sure if I know Summer uh, Brown or Regina Monique. Um, but that's right. also Akila. That's not yeah, right. Akila but that's not, that's not Walker. Six people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So it's Akila Walker mm-hmm. and um, uh, um, the last name is Moma. Sorry. I'll look it. So yes. And they are an amazing cast. They really yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Did you find the the sixth person? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, Gabriella Moma. So it's Akila oh, Walker, oh, okay. Gabriella Moma, Paige Mays, Summer Brown, Regina Monique, and Halili Knox. Yes. Um, nice, nice. Uh, and There's for, um, It's stunning. Mm-hmm. And for House of the Negro Insane, we have Carrie mm-hmm. Moy, Scott Coopwood, Santoya mm-hmm. Fields, and Paige Mays is also uh, casting that play as well. Okay, cool, super, excellent, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I wanted to come back to um, um, our other director, just in case she had something she wanted to add. Um, um, let's see, uh, Candace, um, director, um, did you want to add anything um, to the conversation uh, that we've been having so far? No, I'm just I'm excited to continue to d- help develop uh, Terrence's play and um, work with these artists, and it's also really exciting to meet the other directors and playwrights who are involved in the festival. We've 
um, I had dinner with uh, Delicia the other night, and that was really awesome just to hear about her work and her experience. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone else at the readings. Mm-hmm. What what uh, play um, were this um, were you discussing? Sorry. Um, you said you had dinner um, with someone, and I was wondering what play. Oh, we we just casually oh, all went out for dinner after. Oh, go ahead. Right. <laughs> it's Delicia. I, uh, Kendrick oh. and Terrence, Amy, oh. and I had dinner, and it was just great oh, to okay. connect with colleagues. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily oh, okay. a work meeting. It was just us connecting as artists. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool, super. And um and I was wondering, did we um did we give um the uh the the dates for um uh for the House of Negro Insane, uh did we give them all? Um the both of them already 'cause I, I'm I'm writing notes everywhere. <laughs> Just wanna make sure that we, our audience doesn't miss um miss the two um the two readings. Um, I'm sorry. Say that again. Could you give? I don't know if we gave the dates um, for the House oh, of yeah. the Girl Insane, um, and so I was wondering okay, if you could sure. give them again because sure. I'm not sure if, uh, uh, if the, our audience has. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. House of the Negro Insane is uh, also on Saturday. It's at 4 p.m. So audiences mm-hmm. come uh, for uh, listen to House of the Negro Insane, listen to Rodessa Jones, go have a bite to eat up on Pacaro Hill, and return later at 8 p.m. for flat catch both of them um, on the same day. And likewise, on July 28th, they are paired. So uh, hmm. Flex will be at 1 p.m., followed by a conversation. Uh, people can go off and have some uh, dinner or lunch and then come back at 6 p.m. for House of the Negro Insane. Um, all of the performances take place at Potrero Stage, which is uh, on 18th Street in San Francisco in the Potrero Hill neighborhood. Uh, the exact address is 1695 18th Street. Um, the tickets are very inexpensive <laughs> um, and uh, can be purchased online. Uh-huh. Can you give the website? Uh, sure. It's uh, playwrightsfoundation.org. Okay, cool, super. Um, I was wondering... Um, uh, yeah, uh, Candris, if yeah. uh, I know you, I know you said that you're also a poet, and so I don't know what you're feeling right now. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe share a poem or a, an excerpt of a poem, um, or maybe share something from Flex. And then Terrence, I was wondering if you could share something from the House of the Negro Insane, one of your characters. Um, oh, this is so unexpected. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let's see. If you can give me a minute. Um, sure. Yeah, Terrence, you could go first. Um, yeah, I don't really read my own stuff. 
<laughs> out loud. Oh, come on now, Terrence. People that are way you more did, talented than uh, me. Um, but you I did actually such don't. A good job. Oh, yeah, it was torture for me. I don't know about you all, but yeah, we they they forced us to read read our entire oh, plays yeah. at a, at the retreat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and it was wow, that's great. All the way um, through. Well, maybe maybe um can you just read the first the first page or two is just it would totally do it. I don't actually have the script with me right now. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. well, so you're going to force <laughs> me sorry. to read it for you? That's, that's, that's terrible. That's it. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> I would be happy to read it for you. If I, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, Claudia. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, as, as much as I deeply, deeply enjoyed being able to hear the play in your voice, that was a powerful experience. It helped me to really deeply understand what you meant when you put the words on that page. That was amazing. That said, I want our audience to come to the reading so they can see this play. They need to come because it's some powerful, powerful work. And the, and the thing I'd love to hear from you, Terrence, is I would love to hear from you. Who would you like to come see this play? Like, like who are the human beings that really need to see this? Like, I know I'm reaching out to my disability uh, justice rights community. I'm reaching out to every black person I know. Um, I'm reaching out to my friends who are into historical fiction. So what is the, who are the audiences that you're like, oh, you got to see this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think definitely everyone you named. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think, yeah, anyone who, um, I mean, I really, yeah, I'm really like anybody, everybody's got to see my play, everybody. Um, because I feel like there's, there's so much, um, unsaid, you know, um, these days, uh, this, this country, um, is, does a lot of work to try and cover up and ignore and, um, sweep under the carpet, the, the legacy of, uh, how this country was built and, um, the generational trauma that, that folks are, uh, continue to experience. Um, and I feel like this, you know, this play is a very, a very small piece, but a, like an important piece of, of that history. Um, you know, it, it wasn't about things resetting and all uh, injustice disappearing once slavery was, uh, was quote unquote abolished. Um, and uh, yeah, I really want, I really want the whole world to see this play. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah. Well, um I guess same same question um uh to you um let's see um Candris and um and then did you find something to share? Well, I honestly I probably would have sh- totally shared something with you, but my computer, I'm having like some <laughs> I really am having some like issues with my computer. So, um, no problem. It might be an issue of not, I don't want to, but I just kind of can't right now. Um, mm-hmm. But same as Terrence, um, I would like everyone to see this play. Um, I, I especially um, would like, um, this, to me, this, this is definitely a play for and about women. So um, 
but I think anybody can identify with it. Um, I know that last year uh, in the audience um, there was um, a male basketball, former a male basketball coach. He coaches girls. Might be one of the people who um, do a possibly be one of the people who will do a, a talk back this this um, after one of the stage readings. And he just really appreciated the play because he felt as though not only as a coach, but also as someone who formerly played sports, he could relate to every moment in the play. Um, so I, I, I myself, I love if you, if you, if you were to see the stage reading, you would, you know, you could probably tell I absolutely love a, a great sports narrative. Um, I think that sports narratives are, you know, they're, you know, they're come, you know, you know, everyone can relate to them. Everybody wants to root, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that anybody who sees this play could really, like, you know, get into it. So I, you know, who who doesn't, who, everyone wants everyone to see their work. But, in, and I also think that, you know, this that, that flex is one of those works that not only can everyone, you know, relate to, but everyone can actually like feel. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. right. This is Felicia. Wow. I want to say that you don't yes. need to know basketball in order to enjoy flex. Um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the first time I read it, I grew up a football fan rather than <laughs> a basketball fan, but I, it made, but there's something about the energy and the poetry and the movement of the piece that's um, exceptional. And also, Candace's voice is so specific and uh, incredibly poetic, even though it's basically a, a realistic play. You can People will be able to identify with the relationships and the friendships and the rivalries um, that happen. As you're trying to just to, uh, just really standing to your own, find your own voice. Mm, yeah, yeah, it sounds like some really wonderful work. And um, and Amy, I wanted to um, ask you if you could um, let our audience know um, because the uh, the festival starts on the 19th. Um, to people that want to catch catch you know from the beginning, um, yes. what are the other plays and and tell us about opening night. Or opening sure. afternoon. Um, I'm not sure what time. <laughs> right. Um, well, opening uh, the festival will open on Friday, July 19th at 8 p.m. Um, with a play called Siesta Key by Jonathan Spector. Jonathan Spector is a local Bay Area writer. Uh, he won the Glickman uh, Award last year for Eureka Day. Um, and this is, he was a resident playwright at Playwrights Foundation, and his career is just starting to launch. Um, and this play is, is, takes place in the future uh, of America in Florida after uh, a violent re- revolution. Um, and uh, it's a, a very highly mediated world, uh, meaning, you know, television, film, lights, cameras, uh, and really, uh, really explores the the issue of what is true and what is real, and how memory is um, impacted by by time and history. Um, 
on Saturday the 20th, uh, we at new, we have a show at noon at 4 p.m. and at 8 p.m. And as we've already spoken about, the 4 and 8 are House of the Negro Insane and Flex, which both of which we've been speaking about today. And at noon uh, is a play called How the Baby Died. And you asked me about Grand Guignol Theater, and this is the play that explores that that world sort of it's an exploration of pain through Grand Guignol which is very funny so uh and it's it's about a young woman who um is uh is a nanny and and an actress and is also um considering abortion um and on Sunday the 20 Mm -hmm. July 21st uh we have two plays one is a matinee at 1 p.m how to make an American son by Christopher uh, Christopher Oscar Pena, uh, which deals with several generations uh, of, of an immigrant family and their closest associates, um, and really explores um, uh, the, the role of, of immigration in America and the very and, and what happens uh, when uh, your status uh, is different from those around you, um, and also. Uh, kind of the uh, um, issues of what we have in the past considered to be the American dream <laughs> um, and, and its relationship to, uh, to immigrant families. Um, and at 6 p.m. is a play called The Seekers, um, and that play um, is a very poetic landscape. Uh, the central character is a Somalian immigrant uh, who lives in Minneapolis and she's a teenager um, and she is on the verge of deportation her fam- with her family uh, when she encounters uh, the, uh, these uh, beings who exist in kind of an, in an alternate reality to hers and they speak to her and, and, and seek her, um, her confidence and um, support for their souls. Um, and it's really a play that explores in a very visceral way the, the, um, the experience of displacement and, um, and the, this, the experience of, of, um, of a population, a worldwide population of, of people being displaced by climate change, by political wars, and by violence who um, who are moving and across the country uh, across many many terrains and countries and how that mm-hmm. experience uh, impacts us um, all six of the plays are, are both exploring these really meaningful worlds but they're also mm-hmm. they also have incredible moments of humor and surprising moments of humor um, and surprising moments where you're just really caught off guard emotionally and impacted really strongly. So you can expect to laugh pretty hard and cry. (laughs) Wow. Sounds like a really, really marvelous uh, festival season. Um, And, and Amy, as, as um, you know, you are um, the, uh, you know, sort of conceding um, the role um, this year, like, Next year, I don't think you'll be in this role, right? You'll be doing your own life. I will not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Moving on. So, um, 
Right. So so with this um outgoing um you know, as outgoing artistic director, um uh do you have any reflections on, on this particular um festival, um, you know, as, as you know, as curator, as artistic director? Right. Yeah, you know, walking into a, a uh, into the selection of a festival, it's going to be your last festival. Somebody said to me, um, "Oh, this is going to be the best, most phenomenal, most incredible festival of your entire career." And I was thinking, "Well, <laughs> this is going to be the best festival because every year I am always incredibly surprised." that it is the best festival. Every year, every year, I, I, I walk away from the festival and say, that was the best festival we've ever had. And I believe that very sincerely and, and very intently. And so looking back on these 19 years and at the artists that have come through Playwrights Foundation, the artists who have, uh, have interacted with one another, like people on the phone have, have um, talked about on the radio, um, the, the artists who have made connections, who have made uh, long, lifelong artistic partnerships and friendships. This festival, I see already, will have that very same impact on these artists in this generation. So, over, looking over a 19-year history, what I'm starting, what I'm beginning to see, or have been seeing for the last five to 10 years is that the artists that we worked with 19 years ago are some of the most important artists working today, the most important playwrights working today, that they are the playwrights of this generation working at the regional theater, some of them on Broadway, internationally, and that the artists on the festival now, I, I have no doubt, literally no doubt, that five years from now, will be the artists that our theater community, uh, national theater community, will embrace as the voices of our times. And I can say that with absolute certainty because I've seen it happen every single year. Um, and so that's, what my, that's how I reflect on this year, is that um, sort of in the moment, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 yet these artists are largely unknown at the moment. Largely, um, you know, some of them have a slightly more uh, traction in the you know the, uh, theater world, but for the larger community, um, aren't yet known. Um, but they will be, and they will have an impact on our culture and on the conversation that we have as a nation. I have no doubt. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy, and, and thank you to everyone, um, you know, playwrights, directors, and, and dramaturgs. Um, uh, any any closing remarks from any of you all, um, or have we covered it? <laughs> um, I would just like to encourage people to come see all the shows. Um, like everyone has, else has said, I want to echo that there are six very – unique and just fascinating shows that have um, received a lot of care <laughs> and a lot of patience. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And all the information is at um, 
playwrightsfoundation.org, and you can get tickets and find out about all of the programming and uh, read about the playwrights, really wonderful interviews for each one of them. And, yeah, it's just a really wonderful organization. And, Amy, it's been a real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to um, sort of, you know, being in touch, you know, in your other uh you know, whatever you plan on doing next, and because I know you're also a playwright and a director as well. Most of the certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank right. you. Yeah. Thank you, you guys. Sure. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Wonderful to everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Looking forward Bye. to seeing you, seeing your work. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So we are going to um, conclude with um, uh, one of my favorite artists, McLeet and Quinn, Look What the Light Did. But I want to make sure that everyone knows that um, yesterday was the uh, a partial lunar eclipse, um, and, uh, and, I, and presently you can watch for the daytime moon. Uh, look for it in the west after sunrise for the next couple of days. So it's too late to catch it now because it's it's later. <laughs> it's not after, not not sunrise, but tomorrow, um, the 18th, you can look over in the west and see the daytime moon. Sounds really really awesome. And there's some other things that are coming up um, in the sky. And I I subscribe to the uh, a wonderful. Um, uh, a wonderful uh, newsletter, Earth Sky News, and um, yeah, just let you know things that are happening um, in the uh, celestial sphere. Um, uh, you know, in in all of the different places. Um, you know, we can't see everything in uh, in the Western um, you know hemisphere, but they if we can't, they're always um, really nice images. And um, presently. Um, there is um uh an anniversary of the Apollo uh mission and uh and there was something i read about that um in one of these earth sky news that there's some programming that we can tune into um because i'm not certain what the anniversary is um for the Apollo um i guess i could look that up but then <laughs> i will run out of time uh apollo let's see um yeah, because that was the first, um, yeah, the Apollo anniversary. Um, which one is that, I wonder? Because I'm thinking about the Apollo, which was the first um, uh, space mission, and and the personal connection I have to that because of the um, uh, NASA taking my, my ancestral land to be able to test um these bombs. Yeah, so this is um Apollo, Apollo 11 and the 50th an- anniversary is this week. And so um there was some live streaming on YouTube, so that means that you can um actually go back and look at it um the coverage of of this anniversary. But just know that where the test site is in uh Mississippi, there used to be cities there and people were moved off of their their ancestral land so that there could be the test site to be able to send um send the spacecraft 
into orbit. So anyway, so that's um, that's happening today, and maybe I'll just put a link um, here in the um, in in my pics. So not my pics, but uh, in the um, um, in the uh, the radio show uh, link, so that if you want to click on it, you can you can find it more easily. So thank you so much for joining us for another edition of um, Wanda's Picks. And tune in uh, for Friday um, Pacific Time at 8 o'clock um, for a archival um, rebroadcast. So here is uh, McLeet and Quinn. Look what the light did.